Thanksgiving night. Witness the Survivor Series. symbol of excellence in sports entertainment. Turn it on and rip the knob off. And welcome back to a very special episode of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Now at episode number 104, and it's finally here, guys. The time has arrived. I'm talking about Survivor Series 1987 here in the World Wrestling Federation. In just a couple of minutes, I'm going to be joined by a special guest co-host to help me navigate the inaugural Survivor Series event. But before we get to all of that, just a quick reminder that you guys can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade and our sister shows like the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. And of course, Monday Warfare, the battles within. It's all about Raw versus Nitro and that weekly episodic piece of history known as the Monday Night War and upcoming soon here in the month of October. It's the Wrestling Stoop Podcast with wrestling legend Bob Roop. Be on the lookout for all of those shows and more over at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere your podcast streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. Be sure to follow me on social media, guys. Follow me on Twitter or X. You can follow me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash wrestling grenade follow me on social media for all the latest goings on here at the wrestlecopia podcast network and i'm also constantly adding old school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history and while you guys are at it if you could be a subscriber of my youtube channel go ahead now and subscribe to youtube.com slash wrestling grenade well over 500 videos and counting over there at youtube and last but certainly not least before we jump into things here this week just asking you guys to stop over to patreon.com slash wrestlecopia that address again patreon.com slash wrestle c-o-p-i-a and take a look at that five dollar all access tier i'm going to give you guys all sorts of gifts for just five dollars a month and i've been getting a lot of great public feedback for our patreon as of late guys i want to thank you guys so very much ian tanner one of many now for those still on the bubble wondering if they should join you might be asking what do i get for that five dollar all access tier ray well i'm glad you guys ask you're going to receive all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, pages and pages of show notes for every episode of The Grenade, Regional Wrestling, and the Monday Warfare podcast. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus, remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show, covering the 1989 NWA project. I went back to those shows, re-edited them from scratch, now with enhanced sound quality, and new content and conversation that I originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraints, I edited them right back into the show. But that's not all, guys. You also get 
digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, and of course, our Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday Night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. Plus, random bonus video drops, all part of that all-access tier for the low, low price of just $5. No subscription, cancel anytime. Show your support, guys. Give it a try for a month. I think you'll like all the content that I offer, and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So please, if you have a few bucks to spare, want to try it out, you're looking to support that up-and-coming next wrestling podcast brand, please consider making it WrestleCopia. If you can, help me keep this thing running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that out of the way, you guys know what time it is. Time to jump back into things here on the 1987 World Wrestling Federation Project. And what better way to go than the next pay-per-view in line? And it's all about Survivor Series here today on The Grenade. We talked about it for a little bit on episode number 101 a couple episodes back, but I actually wanted to save the final bit of this for the actual Survivor Series episode. What I'm talking about is the Survivor Series versus Starcade. And of course, we know Vince McMahon creates this Thanksgiving night pay-per-view in addition to his WrestleMania event, but there's actually already been a Thanksgiving night tradition in professional wrestling for the past four years down south with Jim Crockett Promotions' Starcade event. And up until this point, Starcade had only been aired on closed-circuit television in select markets, proving to be a success, but on a much smaller scale. Now, once Crockett saw the success of WrestleMania three, he immediately decided he, too, was joining the pay-per-view game. Enter Starcade 87, Chi-Town Heat, the NWA going to Chicago. Invading the Midwest wasn't the only interesting decision Crockett made, but joining the pay-per-view market to boot. Problem was, Vince had also decided to run a pay-per-view show on the same exact day. What are the odds, pal? McMahon doing his best to thwart JCP from joining in on reaping rewards of the pay-per-view industry here. So last we discussed this, the Survivor Series and Starcade sharing the same day, the same pay-per-view channels. The NWA was already forced to move their planned event from the late evening to earlier in the afternoon in order to accommodate Vince's already scheduled Survivor Series that went on at 7.30 Eastern. Now, Starcade had to be moved all the way back to 5 p.m. Eastern time, which is actually 2 p.m. on the West Coast, so you're talking smack dab in the middle of typical Thanksgiving feasting time. So if that wasn't bad enough, fast forward here and things have gotten even more heated. In the situation, you see, since October, things still weren't good enough for Vince McMahon. Instead of having them go on earlier in the day, why have the competition go on at all? Vince and company contact all of the pay-per-view companies 
that were supplying both pay-per-views and instructs them that if they air the rival Starcade event, that Vince will pull all of his future pay-per-views from airing on those pay-per-view channels, meaning the pay-per-view companies would no longer be allowed to air his already proven WrestleMania events and any subsequent pay-per-views as well. Now, the pay-per-view companies, not realizing that without their channels, Vince would have no pay-per-view himself, most of those PPV companies, they gave in to Vince McMahon's strong-arm business demands and refuted to air Starcade. And with just a few weeks to spare, those pay-per-view channels, they broke the news to Crockett. They'd no longer be airing his planned event, an event that he sunk a lot of money into, hoping to be reimbursed by the pay-per-view buys. Makes sense. Sadly for Jim Crockett, only a few select pay-per-view markets in the tried-and-true Crockett territory, Carolina area, they stuck by their hometown wrestling promotion and aired Starcade anyway. And if I had to guess, I'd say they still wound up airing WrestleMania as well. But the end result in all of this? A complete financial disaster for Jim Crockett and the NWA. Financial suicide, if you will. The effects would eventually play a major part in the demise of the Crockett territory, forcing Jim Crockett to sell the family-owned business that was created back in 1935. After 53 years of serving the wrestling business, the Crockett's will be forced to sell to Ted Turner the following year, less than a year later from here in 1988. And yes, a lot of people give Crockett's willy-nilly spending and, and dusty roads. They, they say that those things also played a factor into this, but it also included this Starcade disaster. You can't argue that. Imagine planning to sell your big event on pay-per-view nationwide only to find out, and I'm just making numbers up here, guys, that out of 100 pay-per-view markets, a half a dozen decided to air it. Those aren't the actual figures, but you get where I'm going. So the financial demise of JCP already on the way and Vince McMahon playing a big part in it here, this disaster created by the aggressive business mogul, Vince McMahon. Try and run my pay-per-view channels, will ya? Take that, pal. Just wanted to get that piece of business out of the way before we jump into the actual pay-per-view. As we head off now to the Survivor Series, the main event built around Hulk versus Andre, the feud that started at the beginning of 1987, continues on here at the end of the year as well. And it's time to jumpstart that feud. It's been dormant for a while, and we're going to do that just in time for the next WrestleMania here coming in 1988, talking about WrestleMania 4. And here tonight at the Survivor Series, it's going to be the first televised encounter between the Hulkster and Andre since WrestleMania 3. Now, remember, they did have that one tag team match. Not really sure how much wrestling Andre did there. I think it was Hogan and Patera versus Andre, and it was supposed to be Heenan, but I think it wound up being something like maybe Hercules in a dark match at a TV taping in the month of, I, I believe it was April or May. Now, outside of that, Andre has not been in the ring whatsoever, so he returns to action here tonight. And I'm going to bring my special guest on here. No spoilers yet, guys. Going to have some fun with him, no doubt, I'm sure. But I'm going to bring him on here in just a bit. But before I do, I went back and watched the original live broadcast version. And what came with that but the 30-minute pre-show, the countdown to the Survivor Series. Going to run through that really quick here. Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan hosting the countdown event from the Primetime Wrestling Studios. And the first 10 minutes simply spent shilling the Andre and Hogan feud. Not their teams, mind you. 
just their specific feud, which, let's be real, guys, it's what's selling the match, even if I was a huge Bigelow mark headed in. We see clips of their epic matchup at WrestleMania 3, the big showdown at Silverdome. Also of note here, no mention of Superstar Graham being injured or that Morocco replacing him, so this was clearly recorded a ways back because obviously they knew these things prior to it airing on television, so kind of interesting. Though sometimes, in some markets, the countdowns would air weeks in advance, trying to sell the pay-per-view. And we follow that 10-minute Hogan-Andre segment up with a nearly equally timed segment, eight minutes here, given to the feud between the Honky Tonk Man and the Macho Man Randy Savage, including highlights from the October 3rd Saturday night's main event, where Honky shoved Elizabeth to the mat, smashed Savage with a guitar, Hulk Hogan out to save the day, and what we would come to know as the formation of the Mega Powers. From there, it's time to talk the ladies' match, which gets a whopping two minutes of time. Really, guys? It's Team Sensational Sherry versus Team Fabulous Moolah, who is apparently now, somehow, a babyface. We go back in time to the summer, back to Houston, Texas. We see the Sensational Sherry being cheered as she defeats Moolah for the belt. Of course, Sherry immediately turned heel after that title win. And the best part of this two minutes, or worst part, depending on how you want to look at it, they have no idea who their partners will be. So it's just eight other lady wrestlers. That wouldn't fly today, pal. I mean, seriously, though, you make it a big deal to promote the Glamour Girls as the ladies tag team champions. You give her Jimmy Hart on TV and yet no mention here. And really, guys, you couldn't brag up the exciting anticipation of seeing the jumping bomb angels arrive from Japan. Surely you booked that prior to the week of the pay-per-view. And in the highlight of the pre-show, if you want to call it that, Bobby Heenan busting out a couple of one-liners here. Heenan going to question Gorilla. Wait a minute, there's going to be 10 ladies in the match? Correct, Brain. Well, that means there's going to be 10 households without tradition tonight. No turkey dinners. Oh, Bobby. That's rough. From there, we finally get to the giant 20-man tag team elimination match. Gorilla Monsoon breaking down the rules that if one member of the team is eliminated, his partner must leave as well. Then, Gorilla announces the teams, noting the Hart Foundation as the current tag team champions. Even though they lost the titles to Strikeforce nearly three weeks ago on television, so instead of referencing the recent title change, we go way back in time to the beginning of 87, we see a clip of the Hearts stealing the belts from the Bulldogs instead. And this match, it gets a whole three minutes of discussion time. Very important for 20 men, most of which just discussing the size of Boris Zukov's cranium. Now, for you super mathematicians out there, you might be saying, wait a minute, Ray, that doesn't total 30 minutes. Well, you're right, because we go back to the Hogan-Andre feud for another six minutes going back to promos this time that have aired on fairly recent TV from both Hulk and Andre. Then from there, we get a weird plug over a plug when the pay-per-view company, Viewer's Choice, actually sneaks in their own promo over top of the Survivor Series promo. Yes, it's the Grateful Dead New Year's concert coming to Viewer's Choice. Over top of Bobby Heenan? That's not cool. And, uh, it was episode 100, John McAdams' special guest joined. He talked about the pay-per-view companies back in this time period. They thought they were going to make big money off of airing concerts at the time. Now, that would prove to be a failure, though they did try multiple times. And here was one of them right here, one of the earliest, The Grateful Dead, New Year's Eve. 
Could you imagine being at one of those pay-per-view parties? And with the odd start time of 7.30 Eastern, Gorilla Monsoon encouraging us one final time to order the event. God, I miss the old school pre-shows. Gorilla, Bobby, Mean Gene, Sean Mooney, Vince, even Todd Pettengill was a great hype guy to score some last-minute buys. And I can't tell you how many times I was on the bubble for ordering a pay-per-view, both WWF and WCW, and these pre-shows, they'd sway me at the very last minute to spend that cash, sometimes for the better, maybe sometimes for the worse, but I never regretted watching a wrestling pay-per-view. Hashtag great memories. As it's time now to kick off the big pay-per-view, the Survivor Series event. Before we do that, I got to bring in my very special guest. I promised him at the top of the show, mentioned it last week. You heard him here as part of our special 100th edition of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Going to bring him back, share a few more memories here on this episode. Yes, guys, once again, going to bring him back, talking about my very own brother, my brother Jesse. Jesse, welcome back to the show. Looking forward to talking all about this awesome event, the Survivor Series here in 1987. Hey, hey, good to be back. Thanks for having me, brother. I guess the stars aligned just right, and uh, our schedule's... Finally aligned with each other. Talking about the stars. Uh Uh-huh. Venus, Pluto, Saturn. Yeah, all that good stuff right there. But, yeah, man, I bet you didn't think I'd be pulling out the invitation card so quickly. You said on episode 100, it took 100 episodes to get you on the show, and you you made the mistake of saying, yeah, man, I'll come back anytime. And here we are four episodes later. (laughs) But I did need someone to ride shotgun with me and bail me out with these allergies and things. So kind of like we do on Red Dead 2. Yeah, man, absolutely. I'm happy to. Well, you know what? If nothing else, uh, I went back and rewatched, you know, of course, Survivor Series 1987. And as usual, I saw a couple things that I didn't notice the first couple times. It's been quite a few years since I've seen it. So, you know, it's my pleasure. I'm glad I could help out. I just hope I uh, lend enough support for you. Hopefully your allergies don't uh, take over. Well, I'm happy to report, guys, that the allergies do seem to be getting better. I think I sound a little better. The nasal passages clearing up a little bit. The cough feels a little less irritating uh, when it comes out. So I'm sure you guys want to hear all about that. But by the way, guys, before we get going, Jesse, I want to shout out to listener Scott Alderson, who on social media said that this episode, he thought this show is going to be, and I quote, one of the sexiest episodes ever of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I certainly hope we live up to that expectation. Yeah, well, uh, that's interesting, Scott. I wonder what exactly brought him to saying that. Was it because I'm going to be on here? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, I didn't say who. I did say we were going to have a special guest. Oh, well, well, it could have been the fabulous Moolah. Maybe that's where he was going with this. Oh, that is true. Yeah, that could be. Or the the jumping bomb angels. Well, yeah. That's a thing. Oh, that's a thing too. Yeah, but that's that's a whole other story. We we'll talk about off air. But yeah, also I want to give a cheers, a literal cheers to Lucas Calhoun. That's Mister LC on Twitter or X as it's called now. Stupid Elon Musk. But anywho, Lucas, when I made a post earlier today uh, about sipping on some cocktails for this episode, he posted a picture of himself with a Southern Tier pumpkin ale in his hand. Uh, so a show of support from Lucas and. Uh, a great drink anytime at this time of year. Yeah, shout out to Lucas, man. I love me some uh, pumpkin ales around this time of year. So it's always it's always good. Uh, stuff. Is it Great Lake that you prefer? I like Southern Tier pumpkin. The great That's Lake my favorite. That I, I drink them oh, all. Southern, Southern there are so, I try them all. Okay. I should I shouldn't say I drink them all. I try them all. There's a lot of them not very good, not very pumpkiny or this or that or maybe too much spice. But 
I know we're here for the Survivor Series, guys, but there's nothing wrong with a couple of guys talking about some beer. But there are some really good pumpkin beers out there. But Southern Tier Pumpkin is probably one of the top of the line. Great Lakes is fine. Yeah, I like the uh, Christmas. I think Great Lakes is better known for their Christmas ale, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but we're talking our region of the world. Hopefully, a lot of you know, there's a lot of beer connoisseurs around here listening, though. I'm sure they're popping right now. Like, hey, these guys know their beers, at least in our neck of the woods, anyway, guys. So, but uh, yeah, we'll get all the formalities. They're all out of the way now, and we're about to head into the pay per view. If you're ready to go, dude, we're gonna roll. Hey, let's rock and roll, man. I'm ready. All right, and away we go. It's the Survivor Series, and we are live, pal. November twenty sixth, nineteen eighty seven. Thanksgiving night, suburban Cleveland at the Richfield Coliseum, 21,300 fans. Wow, that's a lot of people sold out. Can you imagine 21,000 fans driving up that long, narrow road on the way to the Richfield Coliseum in order to witness the very first ever Survivor Series? Witness history. Yeah, I mean, you've been there. I don't think I ever actually went to a wrestling event at uh, Richfield, but... Mm -hmm. uh... If it's single file, like you say, I could only imagine what it's like getting out of that place. Yeah, I feel like it's a two lane. It was a two lane road. I one one lane each way, and uh, yeah, it was it was never fun. The back up there, but sold out. Here we are, Survivor Series, Richfield Coliseum, with a buy rate of three hundred and fifty thousand fans. That's the pay per view, guys. That's just down from four hundred thousand who ordered WrestleMania three. And you have to remember, here in the nineteen eighties, cable was far less available to various portions of the country than it would be in the 1990s. The cable business still growing at this point. Literal cable wire still being laid in the 1980s. People were just catching on to it. In fact, I didn't even get cable TV until early 1987 myself. But Vince, he was still using closed circuit TV as well in select markets to make sure that everybody had the opportunity to watch the Survivor Series. And Series 87 actually does a bigger pay-per-view number than even Series 88 a year later. So the interest was clearly there for this new elimination concept of matches. Yeah, I mean, back in back in these days, we didn't get to see, like, uh, you know, when Raw and Nitro and all that came around a decade later, you know, we weren't able to see, uh, you know, certain people t- tag team with each other or, you know, various villains, you know, on the same team with another one. I mean, this was like the first of its time. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that I watched it in 1987. I was right. only five years old, but... I mean, the first time I did see a Survivor Series, I was super excited. I think it was like 1990, maybe, was the first one that I saw, like, you know, as it happened, or at least uh, close to when it happened. Right, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I I love the concept. You know, it kind of grew into something that was, like, ho-hum. You know, but these first couple, you know, I was excited. Yeah, and it's so You mentioned the the odd pairings of, of guys you could see team up, but I wanted to say competitive matches, too, the competitive matches. you got the big names versus the big names, but you brought up something I didn't even have in my notes, which was the random teams, too. We didn't just get to see the big name versus the big name, but we got to see guys team up that you would never see otherwise. So that was kind of fun as well. Yeah, agreed, especially that big tag team match, which we'll get to later. Oh, my goodness, I can't wait for that. But with the stats portion out of the way, it's time to do it. Let's kick it off, the inaugural Survivor Series. And this marks the first pay-per-view since WrestleMania 3 and the only pay-per-view before WrestleMania 4. It's smack dab in the middle, guys, quenching the wrestling fans' thirst for more competitive big event action as the show kicks off with a loud ruckus Cleveland crowd ready to get this show going. As we hear the Fink Howard Finkel actually gives a reintroduction for the announcers. Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse, the body Ventura are announced to the fans. As the commentators walk out from the back. They get their own entrance. 
climb up the steps to the broadcast booth. And if memory serves me, Jesse, this is the only pay-per-view that I can recall where the announcers were introduced live on the pay-per-view. And I know Jim Ross and some of those guys got those intros in the pre-show many years down the road, but I'm talking way back here in 87. It was kind of cool to watch Jesse and Gorilla get introduced. Yeah, I mean, they were superstars. So, I mean, uh, I was happy for them that they, you know, got their recognition. Not so happy that uh, the body had to say what he had to say about our hometown, though. Oh, that's, that is true. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about that. Well, yeah, we could talk about that right now. Body uh, repeatedly throughout the show, he downed Cleveland. He gave him crap at the beginning of the show. Certainly gave him crap right before they signed off the end of the show. But it was you pointed out something which I already knew. We've watched it a million times over the last 30-plus years. But at Survivor Series 88, when they come back to Richfield, he does a 180 on the Cleveland. Yeah, a complete 180. I mean, I don't remember the exact uh, term terminology he used in 87, something like, I can't wait to get out of this hellhole. Right. And he does a complete turnaround. Uh, Survivor Series 88, I turned it on the other night just going to bed, you know, something to watch. And uh, Always a fun uh, I was so shocked because it's the same exact venue. And he goes, there's no place I'd rather be. It's like, yeah. where's the, where's the punchline? I'm waiting for him to, like, turn it around and, <laughs> you know, make it a joke. And no, exactly. he just left it like that. I was surprised. Yeah. What are you doing, Jess? Hey, I'm going to have me a good time on Turkey Day, even in Cleveland, if you can imagine that. Hello, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving. And I guess if you're not from here, maybe you never even noticed that. So that's something that at least Clevelanders would point out, and, and rightfully so. It's so funny to listen to Ventura rip apart the city multiple times in 87 and then in 88, talk about, there's no place I'd rather be, Gorilla than Cleveland, Ohio. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fun though. And, and the body, God bless him. I mean, one of the greatest announcers of all time. Yeah. I loved him, man. Him and Vince were good together. Him and gorilla were good together. I don't know. He, he always put on a good, uh, good show. Yeah. He was always ready for pay-per-views, especially in the duo gorilla and Jesse here. They have a little banter before we head to what feels like a, just a 10 second intro video with a really generic music lined up and a really small, Survivor Series logo shown in the middle of the screen. Trust me, guys, they'll get better at that in time. But some great overhead shots of the Coliseum here early on, showing just how massive that old Richfield Coliseum was. And it's back to the announcers. And I had to notice this. I talked to you about this off air uh, several days ago. I don't know if you had a chance to go back and check it out, but boy, was Jesse Ventura wearing a shit ton of makeup here for this one. A little too much blush there, body. Maybe he's in a movie star mode here. Predator, of course. Earlier here in 87, Running Man just coming out right around this time frame as well. But the body just really rocking a little too much makeup for this pay-per-view. Yeah, he must have brought his makeup crew along with him. Who knows? I think somebody did I didn't something. really notice until he pointed it out. But when I watched it back, I definitely noticed. <laughs> yeah, maybe he had this added into his contract. He gets a ring entrance or, excuse me, a uh, announcer's entrance. And he's you know got the makeup crew running for him, too. So kudos to Jesse Ventura, who's, who's big league at this point. He's movie star, baby. As the broadcast duo, they break down the four big matches tonight, but Gorilla forgets about the main event. How do you do that, Monsoon? Must have been focused on another slice of that peanut butter pie. Which So Jesse quickly reminds Gorilla, hey, you forgot about Andre and Hulk. So they quickly cover that up. And from there, Gorilla breaking down the rules of these Survivor Series matches here tonight. The elimination rules, or the ways of elimination, if you will. It's by pinfall, submission, countout disqualification and the one that caught me off guard when I was a kid referee's discretion pending injury uh, you don't see that every day in the WWF world was that ever used not on this not a, no not that not to my knowledge but I found it interesting that was, like it was inserted okay. there. right yeah 
So, I mean, maybe back in the old yeah. garden days, Vince Sr., sure, you, the guy couldn't continue the match or whatever. But no, here in the uh, sports entertainment portion, I, last time I could think of at this point was probably Davey Boy and Steamboat going back to the Wrestling Classic WrestleVision, that tournament, or the Battle of the Baby Faces there. That was yep. going to be such an awesome match. And then Davey Boy, you know, catches his groin on the ropes and they have to stop the match. Cheap way out. Yeah, I guess it does cover their bases just in case you don't want a, uh, one of your top performers getting injured and making them go through, you know, just because. So. Right, but it's hey, whatever. interesting. They probably, I'm sure they eliminated that rule in the future. Nice little addition. And remember, as mentioned on TV the last several weeks anyway, it's the captains of the team that get to pick who starts the match for their respective sides. Lots of tomfoolery here. Lots of talking between Gorilla and Bobby before we ever Sorry, guys, I have prime time on my mind between Gorilla and Jesse Ventura here. It's finally time for action, or maybe not. First, we're going to head backstage. Craig DeGeorge standing by with Team Hockey Tonk. All right, Gorilla, thank you very much. And we are just moments away from our first Survivor Series matchup. The Macho Man to lead his fivesome against this team led by the Hockey Tonk Man. And you see the greatest team ever assembled for the Survivor Series, and this team is ready. We're going to play a tune for the Survivor Series that's never been heard before. And if you think somebody wants to get in our way, let them step up there. They'll get shoved down one by one. I said it before, and I'll say it again. This is the greatest team ever assembled. I got hard. Harley Race, I got Hercules, I got Ron Bass, Dangerous Danny Davis, I got Bobby Lafrain Heaven, and I've got Jimmy Hart. You're looking at the best, the greatest intercontinental heavyweight champion of all time, and I don't care, Elizabeth, if you set foot in a ring, you're gonna get exactly what you deserve. I'm gonna do something nobody's ever done. Shake, rattle, and roll you, Elizabeth. I'm gonna leave you laying macho. I'm gonna get you steamboat, snake, beefcake. I'm gonna get you Dougie. Let's go. All right, now I'm there. Hockey Talk Man and his team really cranked up for this one, Bod. Well, they definitely sound very, very confident. And Hockey Talk throwing out a warning to Elizabeth. Let's go. Oh, man. Coming out of this, I got to ask you, man. I know you've noticed. Did you ever notice? Of course you did. That every promo. (laughs) Do you see where I'm going with this already? And this particular Survivor Series (laughs) features everyone on every team yelling random words. Maybe they're not even real words jumping around, flailing their body parts uncontrollably for no apparent reason. If I didn't know any better, I'd say someone laced the turkey and pumpkin pie with mounds of cocaine. Twas the times, after all. <laughs> yeah, I actually tried to uh, make out what some of the individuals were saying. I, I honestly think that some of them were just yelling n- a bunch of nothing. Yeah, I, I feel like they just picked just, it. Make a bunch of noise. We're live. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> I, lo- I love those, and I've always noticed that since day one, the first time I ever saw this Survivor Series, I'm like, what are these guys doing? I've never even seen certain people behave this way, but they do here tonight. I think the producer here, probably Vince, he must have been instructing everyone to act overhyped to pump up the fans, maybe. And in an odd way, it always worked for me. And here, Hockey Tonk, he's the only one who actually talks directly into the microphone as he tries to shout over his entire team who are all also rambling on, maybe incoherently, as Honky Tonk Man even promises to shake, rattle, and roll Miss Elizabeth if she gets in the way. You see, in the 1980s, guys, you could beat up on a woman, and it could still be considered kid-friendly, pal. Yeah, my how times have changed. Changed indeed, but Honky Tonk, that evil heel, he threw Elizabeth to the mat back at Saturday night's mid event, now threatening to give her his finisher. How dare he? Honky also referring to his team as the greatest team ever assembled. I wrote, pretty low standards there, Honk. 
Yeah, I'm trying to. Yeah, uh, I don't really have much of a comment about that. I don't, I don't really want to put anyone down. I was never a professional wrestler. I didn't do it, but uh, I, I Let's agree. be honest here, okay? I mean, Outlaw Ron Bass, never on syndicated TV. Danny Davis just made his quote-unquote TV debut as a singles wrestler within weeks of this pay-per-view. Ugh, I don't know. Hey, man, you got to build it up, dude. At yeah. least he had the energy. Quality. He, he, he tried. <laughs> what everyone in that building came to see was Honky Tonk get his ass handed to him that, by the other team. It didn't matter whose partners were. And on the other team had a, a grudge with him. That's that's right. We're going to get to that in just a minute, too. But it's just so funny. You, you said that that everybody just came to see the Honky Tonk man get his ass kicked. So it really didn't matter who his partners were. And I think Vince and company realized that. And that's why... He got the team that he did as the opening bell sounds to signal the beginning of the matches. And the crowd goes from a simmer, very quiet, to a loud ovation all at once. They know something's about to go down and boy, do they sound ready. And I am ready. They got me in the mood as the heels. They make their way to ringside. Harley race out to the Kings theme along with the rest of the team. And then it's Captain Intercontinental Champion Honky Talk Man, of course, getting his own entrance. And if you look closely as Honky enters the ring, you'll see the King Harley Race trying to dance, maybe do a little Elvis hip gyration there. Harley Harley Race always looking to have a little fun. I think he knew his role here in the WWF. I loved Harley Race, <laughs> WWF, anywhere he was. But yeah, I, I noticed that too, the little dance. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would have kind of you know, zoomed in on that a little bit. The King. Yeah, maybe they, well, if he had told somebody it was coming, maybe they could have. But right now, guys, we're going to step aside again. It's time to go backstage. We heard Craig DeGeorge with the heels. Now we're off to Mean Gene Oakland standing by with Team Macho Man. All right, as they await the arrival of their captain, Macho Man Randy Savage, with the honky dog fan and his team up in the ring. You can still hear the music. Issues, Ricky the Dragon, Steamboat, Issues. Yes, we will have scores to settle. That's why we're here. We are survivors. Making all these I'm so faint for sure, the king will fall, and there will be a survival of God. Right, yeah. Put a the cake, Jake, the St. Roberts, Elizabeth is here, and Captain Macho Man, Randy Savage. Survival Series, yeah. I remember you, Honky Talk Man. You pushed Elizabeth down real hard, didn't you? Yeah, you hurt her, and you embarrassed her. And now the Survivor Series, all these men are psyched for the back. It's gonna be a bad time, yeah. It's a danger zone And there it was, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about this. Team Macho, and what do we have but Ricky Steamboat making stereotypical 1970s karate noises and fighting stances. We've got Hacksaw Jim Duggan pretending to use his 2x4 as a shotgun, and I have no idea what the fuck Brutus Beefcake is doing by the time Savage enters the screen with scissors in his hands, no less. But how ironic is it that Jake Roberts, of all people, standing there is acting the least coked up of the entire bunch. <laughs> well, he had a reputation to uphold, man. He's very uh, uh, solemn and serious before his matches, like a Edgar Allan Poe-esque type of guy. So, and, and course, But you know what really got me, though, man, and <laughs> yeah. I was laughing out loud was uh, Steamboat, dude. Oh, yeah. I, that's, that's, <laughs> With the, it's, the oh, yeah, it's just over the top. <laughs> some, uh, some Mortal Kombat Street Fighter type noises. I'm not really sure what was going on there with yeah, Steamer, but uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun time there. That promo Savage leading his team into battle as Team Honky Tonk Man has apparently entered the danger zone. Yeah, 
and it's back to the ring as Ricky Steamboat leads the team into battle as they head out to Sirius by the Alan Parsons Project. And this team, not quite your Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls, if you know what I mean, but an equally exciting five-man group. Yeah, I mean, they all, you know, were over in their own right uh, for the most part. I mean, three out of the five of them, to start 87, they were all heels. So, I mean, some of them were, you know, just starting to get over as a baby right. face. You know, of course, Macho Man already over as a heel. They kind of were forced to turn him baby face because of the crowd. So, uh, yeah, I mean, definitely a little bit more star power on that side of the uh, ring than the, the other side. No oh, yeah. offense, Honky. <laughs> no, I, I got that in my notes here. We'll get to that in just a minute. So four of the baby faces out there out next, of course, is Team Captain Macho Man and the lovely Elizabeth and a lovely red dress here as well, I might add. And here we go. The first matchup ever in Survivor Series history. It's IC champ Honky Tonk Man leading his team into battle of the King Harley Race, the Mighty Hercules, Outlaw Ron Bass, Dangerous Danny Davis, and they're accompanied out there by Bobby the Brain Heenan and the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart. They're taking on their opponents. Listen to this team, guys. Captained by the Macho Man Randy Savage, but it doesn't stop there. We're talking Jake the Snake Roberts, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, of course, accompanied by the lovely Miss Elizabeth. And there's no Hulk Hogan here in this match, so this can't be the quote-unquote main event. But my God, look at that babyface team. Just about every major single superstar crammed into one monster group led by the Macho Man. Hey, man, it was star power for sure. I'm glad they opened hot like that, though. The crowd wanted to see all those guys. So oh my God. why not stick them all in the same map and see, see which one of them gets the opportunity to, uh, you know, beat on Honky a little bit. Yeah, and, and most of the – everybody really made sense here. It was just a really uh, great team, one of the probably the greatest teams ever assembled, if you think about it. All these guys were meant to be the uh, the B guys or the A2 guys, if you will, after WrestleMania three, there were rumors that Hogan was going to go make a movie and things of that nature. Who was going to main event the A shows, the B shows. All of these guys were in line for those positions besides Savage, who was a heel. So it's very interesting here. But I just look at this and I got to address a few things. And, and you brought some of these up off air with me as well. So we're definitely on the same page as far as some of the things we noticed. The baby faces, for instance, the past issues that Ricky Steamboat just recently had with Jake the Snake Roberts and, of course, more recently, the Macho Man. And the only way to make this match more confusing was if you added George Steele into the factor as well, had to add him to the Team Macho as well. But you got to remember, Ricky Steamboat, he was laid out by Jake, a DDT on the concrete on Saturday night's main event. Jake tried to put him away all the way through the summer of 86, and then it was Macho Man's turn who basically tried to end the career of Ricky Steamboat, not just put him out of the uh, action, but maybe... Maybe kill him here in wrestling storylines as well. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't too long ago that uh, Ricky Steamboat couldn't talk. Didn't he have some sort of yeah. throat injury due right, to the hands yes. of one of these guys? Right, Savage across the uh, so, guardrail I mean, and the bell. Went right, so I mean, yeah, very forgiving person. <laughs> uh, he's more concerned about working on his karate or uh, kung fu or whatever he was doing least, during the interview. Or at least his noises anyway. As a honky's weaker looking team here, was it designed that way? You have to wonder now that you point out it was just all about getting the honky talk man's asses ki ass kicked here. Did they design it that way? Uh, was there anybody left that they could have put in place of some of these guys on the team? Now, I'm not trying to down Harley Race or Hercules. They're Heenan family members. They, you know, they're certainly well known. They had decent spots on WrestleMania three, but you start looking around. Outlaw Ron Baskets put into this and the baby faces side just blowing the heels out of the water here as far as star power goes, though. Oh, I totally agree. 
I mean, I wouldn't even consider a couple of the guys on Honky's team, you know, pay-per-view worthy, but you know, who am I? Yeah, well, it's, it's also Survivor Series. got to get more guys on the show. Uh, we got to look at the babyface side, though. Everyone's issues with Hockey Talk, man. It started with Jake Roberts at the beginning of the year. Hockey aided Jake in turning face. Remember the guitar shot over the head on the snake pit? Then from there, Hockey stealing the IC title from Ricky's Steamboat, and most recently, aiding in the Randy Savage babyface turn as well throwing Elizabeth to the mat, smashing the guitar once again, this time over the head of the Macho Man. And most recently, just a few weeks ago on TV, Brutus Beefcake getting a title shot with the Honky Talk Man, and that went awry as well. So Honky, he has issues with almost everybody on the babyface side. Yeah, I mean, other than, uh, did he ever have any direct interactions uh, with Hacksaw? Not yet. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, other than Hacksaw, you're right. I mean, he has a... Settle uh, a score to everyone on the other team, I should say. Sorry, has a score to settle uh, with Honky in some way or another. So, besides Honky's issues with nearly the entire opposing team, the other big feud going on here inside this matchup, of course, is Hacksaw versus Harley Race at this point. I should also note Danny Davis, albeit a brief issue, had a recent issue with Jake the Snake Roberts before Jake's suspension. Danny Davis trying to steal Damien from ringside. Uh, that was dropped, though. They never mentioned again, so they're not really playing that into the storyline here. But a quick note before I forget to mention it, the Elimination-style Survivor Series pay-per-view, it features two referees, one in the ring, one on the outside. And you'll notice here on this pay-per-view, they actually utilized that outside referee quite a bit. Uh, they were quite active in these matches. But uh, for you stat fans out there, away we go. And the first ever match of the series kicks off with Beefcake versus Hercules. And they go to get it on Herc has long since dropped the Hernandez from his name, but he's not quite mighty yet either. As the barber, he tries a sleeper hold early on, and Hercules makes the tag to Danny Davis, the wrestling referee, brought in the hard way, and the entire babyface team, besides Duggan, take turns beating on Davis in the ring. Danny finally able to tag out to the king, Harley Racin, as we get a glimpse of what could have been a hell of an NWA world title match a few years earlier when Harley Race and Ricky Steamboat go at it. I marked out for that. I actually just saw clips of a race steamboat match today on Twitter from Japan back in 82, but I just loved it here. Where else but the Survivor Series do you get to see Ricky Steamboat and Harley race in the ring at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, two legends in their own right. Uh, you're right, though. I mean, uh, a few years earlier probably could have been a main event on any pay-per-view that I would have paid to see for sure. Yeah, there would have been something they could have worked that into a Starcade or something just a few years back. But here we are, Survivor Series. The dragon refusing to be dumped out of the ring. Keeps skinning the cat back inside, not once, but twice. And then tossing the king out of the ring instead. But Harley re-enters, landing his patented belly-to-belly -belly suplex on Steamboat. But the dragon kicks out and tags the hacksaw. Ho! Duggan involved for the first time in the matchup as the crowd erupts. As hacksaw comes in and goes to town on Harley crowning the king with several big ham bone punches before clotheslining race back to the outside. And then Duggan, he's going to follow race out to the floor and the two men trading punches brawling on the outside until they are both counted out four minutes and 31 seconds into the matchup. And Duggan spent a whole 30 seconds in that match. I want to get your thoughts on that one. I mean, I thought it was a little quick uh, into the match. I know they can't mm -hmm. wrestle forever, but like you right. said, you know, Hacksaw, 30 seconds of action right. before spilling out to the outside. Yeah, never even and, and Before you know it, he's already out of the match. Yeah. The other thing, too, man, I'll give Hacksaw some props. 
you know, by the time I got really heavy into watching all the time, you know, it's probably already 90, 91. Hacksaw's already, you know, he's still over. I'm never going to say that he, he wasn't. But, I mean, he this guy was getting huge, huge pops from the crowd uh, in, in these late 80s, 87, especially right here, man. I mean, the crowd was going crazy for him. Yeah, they loved him some Hacksaw. And I dare say he was never more over than he was in the WWF. Uh, prior to that uh, brief firing he had over the summer of 87, that first little run he had there earlier in 87, I mean, it was next level over. But he's still over here, like you said. He got a hell of a response. Great crowd here in Richfield. And I would have liked to have seen Duggan and Race go at it a little more, but uh, double count out it is. And I thought their elimination was smartly played. Like, I didn't mind the double count out here. They're feuding. Neither guy necessarily needs to be pinned here. So I was fine with that, but I agree with you. I would like to have seen a little more from him in the ring. As the action continues momentarily, the next elimination, not too far behind, a macho man jumps in, tangling with the outlaw. Savage makes the mistake of turning his attention, though, to the honky-tonk man on the apron, allowing Bass to blast him with a clothesline that takes Savage down. And then, and only then, does Honky finally tag in, taking advantage, putting the boots to Savage. But then Macho comes fighting back, so Honky immediately stumbling to his corner, like the true heel he is, Tagging back to the outlaw, Ron Bass. Bass back in, going to try for his pedigree-like finisher, but Savage counters with a backdrop. And then the legal man, the macho man, makes a blind tag to partner Brutus Beefcake behind the outlaw's back, and Macho whipping Bass into the ropes, does a little drop down, outlaw jumping over top of Savage and running right into a high knee from the barber. Brutai going to get the pin, eliminating the outlaw seven minutes. And I wrote, ah, now it all makes sense, Jesse. Ron Bass eliminated by Brutus Beefcake. That's why he gets his revenge the following summer, cutting him up with those spurs. Yeah, did they allude to the Survivor Series 87 heading into that SummerSlam? No, no, that that, that was just a simple joke. Okay. Yeah, I don't think just they remember that foresight. far. <laughs> so outlaw hey, Ron Bass. I'm not as clever as you are. I didn't catch, I didn't catch your joke, man. Oh, Sorry. Right. <laughs> oh, maybe my joke wasn't good. Maybe that's where we're at. So... <laughs> From there, the next few minutes, though, features the heel team working over the beefer, Savage having a hard time keeping his cool on the apron whenever Honky Tonk Man in the ring. Crowd, though, rallying behind the barber. Brudite finally ducking a big right from Honky, countering with an atomic drop. Barber makes the comeback while the announcers talk about what a mistake it is that he's not tagging out. And that proves to be true. As the barber tries to run the ropes, he gets caught in the back by a knee from Danny Davis on the apron, right in front of the referee, I might add, who has to pretend he didn't see it. Brutus then stumbling forward right into the shake, rattle, and roll neckbreaker. And Honky Tonk Man going to get the pin to even things back up. Brutus elimination, 10 minutes and 49 seconds into the matchup. So, Yeah, and I love how Gorilla and Jesse both are kind of foreshadowing uh, events to come, you know, with the whole, he should have tagged out right there, you know what I mean? So... That's just uh, foreshadowing at its best. Yeah, and you know what's funny is they didn't even mean to because back then it's not like it was all scripted on paper for them. This elimination is going to occur when this happens and that. They're just kind of calling the show, but they're speaking from uh, so-called experience or whatever you want to call that. And they said, Brutai, making that mistake, you know, yeah, you didn't, he's not tagging out, and it, he paid for it. Ran into a knee from Davis, and Honky Talk Man going to follow, follow it up with his finisher. Uh, and given the finish that the match will have, I'm actually surprised that Hogan's brother Brutai he did a pinfall job here since so many people will survive, but Honky, he had to eliminate someone here to look credible as the IC champion. And also, they made sure Beefcake eliminated someone first, the outlaw, to save face. Yeah, makes sense. Good booking, I guess. Uh, kind of make everyone look a little strong before they get eliminated. 
you know, I we talked about this for years too. Not just Beefcake, but a few other guys as well. But Beefcake, he was one of those guys who generally got away without ever having to do a pay per view job. I mean, seriously, if you think about it for a minute, I think this is the only time he was actually ever pinned in all of his WWF pay per views that he was ever on. And I'm going all the way back to WrestleMania one, going all the way forward to WrestleMania six, even WrestleMania nine. This may be Brutai's only pinfall loss here on pay per view. Well, I mean, you know, in his own words, he was second in the company only to Hulk Hogan. So, I mean, how dare he lose on pay-per-view, brother? He he, he did say that. That is something he has said in that 1989 timeline uh, with kayfabe commentaries. You got to go listen to that one. Beefcake has his own version of how uh, 1989 went down. He was right there with Hulk Hogan. (laughs) He was the 1B, guys. I'm telling you. Uh, but we'll get back to the matchup here. Following the Barber's elimination, Savage tries to get after Honky, but he's caught off guard by Hercules instead. It isn't too long before Jake tags in and runs into a Honky knee in the corner. It gets worked over by Honky Tonk and Hercules from there. Jesse Ventura then says something here, and he's said this from time to time in the past as well, but I always found it interesting. He says, even as a heel announcer here, he notes what Honky lacks in ability he makes up for it with pure luck. So he says sometimes it's better to be lucky than actually being good. So the WWF not trying to hide the fact that they're aware that Hockey Talk Man is not a good wrestler, uh, but his cunning and his luck has led him this far. Yeah, I mean, it works in poker, so why not for Honky? <laughs> works for Honky here in the WWF. His luck's going to go on for quite a while after this as the heels continue to beat down on Jake. And when Danny Davis is finally tagged back in, after a brief stint on top of the Snake Man, Roberts begins to no-sell Danny's offense. We hear DDT chants from the fans as Jake begins to fight back, delivering that short-arm clothesline. And what comes next? Yes, the DDT connects to put an end to Dangerous Danny's Night. In 15 minutes and 9 seconds, making it now the babyfaces in the lead. Three versus two. And immediately after the elimination of Davis, Hercules catching the snake here with a nice-looking flying clothesline. I would have bought that as a pinfall. I don't know if you remember this specific spot, but Hercules just rushes in and lands a nice jumping clothesline. And uh, the heels, they work Jake over for the next five minutes of the match. Yeah, I mean, it was a really nice uh, stiff clothesline. Hercules is a big guy, man. I wouldn't want to mess with him. No, not at all. I just, going back I, I, really quick, though. Yeah. I was just going to say, going back to the DDT really quick, man. Mm-hmm. I think there was a sign in the crowd that says, if we don't see a DDT, we riot. All right, well. I could that, be mistaken. That's I'm possible. just kidding. No, but seriously, <laughs> man, everyone came. They wanted to see a DDT. I'm glad they got it. I am, too. You know, I was bu- I was always bummed out whenever we didn't get certain finishes in these Survivor Series matches. DDT would have been one of them. So it was nice to see it applied here. And who better than Dangerous Danny to sell it there? Jake Roberts wiping him out. But then Jake getting taken down and beaten down for an extended period of time, five minutes here, by Hercules and Honky Tonk. And this segment of the match goes on just entirely too long. Too many guys out there to work a heat spot on Roberts that goes five minutes straight. When you have to go to a chin lock of doom in a match like this, it's it's time to move along. I agree completely. There's too many things to get to, to, to draw it out with some chin locks. And it started hot. Let's end it hot, you know. But, uh, hey, it is what it is, and it happens. Well, we'll see what happens here. Jake tries fighting back, catching Honky Tonk with a nice knee lift, patented Jake Roberts' knee lift, but the IC champion able to tag back to Hercules. And the heels stay on top, but finally, Roberts breaks that chin lock from Herc using the jawbreaker and makes the tag out to the Dragon. As we get token steamboat offense, we see the top rope karate chop and Steamer slamming Hercules into position, tagging to the Macho Man as Savage goes straight to the top rope, 
delivering his patented flying elbow. Mm, yeah. Onto the mighty Hercules, and Herc eliminated 21 minutes and two seconds to make things now ugh, three on one. And I like the idea of the heels cutting the ring in half, wearing down an opponent makes sense, but Jake Roberts was an odd choice because, to me, Steamboat was always much better as the face in peril, the great sell job Steamboat would do in the facials, but Jake was just in there for far too long of a stretch. Given that the match started off with 10 men, Nobody had any business in the ring for five to eight minutes straight. It started to drag when Hercules put Jake in that chin lock, but to their credit, they did go right into the hot tag afterwards to keep the crowd hot. Yeah, I guess I didn't even realize that Jake was in there for, for that long, but I, you know, when you put someone in a, a chin lock for a few minutes, I guess that'll, you know, take down the time at a pretty quick pace. Uh, I love the little, um, what was that? The whoa, whoa. Walk I love that, man. Yeah, yeah, well, credit Ricky Steamboat, not me. That was, just, yeah, just, well, no, I mean, that was a perfect, that's exactly, you sounds just like him. I thought I was talking to Ricky Steamboat for a second. That was my intentional impression there. Yeah, there you go. But here we go. It's down to three on one, guys. It's Savage, Steamboat, and Jake versus the Hockey Talk Man. The three men that he just happened to be feuding with all year long at some point in time. And wouldn't you know it, here it is. Comes down to three on one. It's almost like they wrote it this way. Yeah, almost, right? <laughs> almost. <laughs> you couldn't write a better story, could you? Savage, though, initially he misses a charge into the corner going after Hockey Tonk, but the babyfaces still quickly take control here. Jake Roberts, Randy Savage, Ricky Steamboat all get a little payback here on the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, but Savage delivering a top rope double axe handle, followed by an atomic drop, sending Hockey through the ropes and out of the ring. Hockey hits the floor. And he just starts walking straight to the back. And it doesn't look back either, does he, Just uh, As the crowd booing within seconds as they realize <laughs> they know what the coward is doing. They see what's happening. The crowd booing before the countout even done. And yes, the hockey talk man taking the deliberate countout here to, avo to avoid doing the job. Match goes 23 minutes and 39 seconds. Hockey cowardly heel running off. Hey, that's a true heel right there. And I don't know if you caught it. I'm sure you did at some point. But uh, I think Jesse uh, Ventura mentioned something when it is three-on-one, something about how they could pin him at any time. They're, like, playing with him, or they'd rather just beat him up instead. I forget exa you know, exactly right. what you're saying, but I was like, you know what? That's pretty cool that he pointed that out. Well, Because it's true. I mean, why can't true. they? It could have been ET. Elbow drop, you know, whatever, flying crossbody, chop, whatever you want to do there. They yeah, could have taken him out. Ricky could have just stood there making noises. Yeah, Ricky could have just stood there making his karate noises while the other two just picked him apart. Everybody would have been involved in the finish then. Uh, so naturally, though, guys, Hockey Talk Man taking the count-out loss, running away, as he had been doing in matches with Savage on the house shows. But here it's on pay-per-view, and I'm not really a giant fan of that, and we'll get to that in just a second. But your survivors here, the Macho Man, the Dragon, and the snake and the fans, they sound happy. So I guess, I guess that counts for something. Yeah. I mean, it's a good start to the pay-per-view. Uh, the hot, the crowd was hot going in. Uh, they were hot coming out, you know, with the faces getting over, probably not too happy with honky tonk running away. I'm sure they wanted to see him get pinned or better yet submit, but, uh, Hey, the faces won and everyone was happy. Talk about protecting your champions and your top talent. Hockey Tonk can't even do a job against three of the top baby faces in the entire matchup. And I'm not defending the finish of the match because personally, I'm not a fan of screwy finishes on pay-per-view. And I think that Hockey Tonk taking a pin here would have popped the house big time. 
and it wouldn't have hurt Hockey Talk Man at all. Do a job to these three guys? I mean, give me a break, but think of it like this, guys, anyway. At least he left with major heat for the upcoming IC title match between Hockey and Macho on the main event on NBC. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they know what they're doing. They they knew uh, that that was just going to make the crowd want it even more. So These two I, I don't really like the count outs and the DQs and all that on pay-per-views either. But, I mean, I think they played their cards right on this one. No doubt, though, that that roof would have came off if they would have got the pin. Especially, you know, crossbody, get up, DDT, macho man off the top rope. Everyone hit their finisher. It would have been awesome, man. Everyone that I don't was think usually they would have buried them like that, though. No, no, no. <laughs> that'd have been a little too much. I think they would have just got maybe probably an inside cradle or reverse rolling cradle, something like that. Probably here a fluke win, if you will, even if it was three on one. But I still would like to see the pinfall. We already saw the double count out earlier in the match. But other than Brutus Beefcake, everyone there that was usually protected from taking televised pins was protected here, though. For this being the first match on the Survivor Series, these guys did a perfectly acceptable job of giving us a solid match. Not a great match, but a solid one with a lot of action. But would you expect anything less from a talent pool like this? Absolutely not. I got pretty much what I expected. You know, other than the the, the very end with the count out, I was was satisfied with what we got. Yeah, for sure. I could have went for a pinfall finish all day long, but it was fine for the times, I suppose. And coming out, the Duggan Race feud continues on. Can't wait for their upcoming brawl throughout the Slammy Awards in December. The Macho Man going to continue to chase the Honky Tonk Man for now. Bigger things coming ahead for both guys, really. As for the rest, Steamboat will work some dream matches on house shows in December versus Ted DiBiase, usually putting Teddy over as he builds to that world title main event picture, the Million Dollar Man. Dangerous Danny Davis is going to miss a few weeks after the pay-per-view, but Danny will continue his matches with Sam Houston moving forwards. He gads. Brudai going to continue his issues with the Jimmy Hart faction, specifically the latest addition after the Survivor Series. I'm talking about Greg the Hammer Valentine, his former partner, and then eventually Honky Tonk Man himself. And as for the rest of the crew here in this match, Ron Bass, Hercules, Jake Roberts, they're going to be bouncing around for the remainder of the year, not doing a whole lot. Yeah, where does Jake go after this? Does he have like a feud going with anyone heading into 88? Or I'm trying to think that the next match I recall is him and Rude and at WrestleMania 4. Right, that was just the tournament match. They hadn't even started their feud yet at that point. So Jake's feud with Rude doesn't start oh, until after okay. after WrestleMania, right? Yeah, so okay. it's, it's quite a ways for Jake. But after all of the injury, the timeout for the injury, the suspension, he's just kind of in a, a standstill right now until they find something new for him. Till creative find something for him to do long-term. All right. As uh, we roll on with the show, we're back to Craig DeGeorge. He's standing by with team Andre the Giant. All right, thank you very much. And later on, we will witness the main event. World Wrestling Federation heavyweight Jet Hope Hogan captaining his team against this team captained by Andre the Giant. A team consisting of the one-man gang, King Kong Bundy, the managers, the doctor of style, the slickster, and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And to my right, ravishing Rick Rude, the natural Butch Reed, and of course, the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. And Bobby, I know Andre, the entire team, very hopeful of tasting victory tonight. Tasting victory? 
This man tasted victory in WrestleMania 3 when he pinned Hulk Hogan's shoulders to the mat. One, two, three, and I'm going to guarantee you, like you thought and everybody thought, it's going to happen again. Perhaps we can get a comment from the eighth wonder of the world himself, Andre the Giant. Hogan, I did it once, and I will do it again. Later on, the main event, Hulk Hogan's team against Andre the Giant. Steve Slick, do your thoughts, please. Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is, brother. Tonight, these gentlemen are not going to behave as gentlemen. They're going to be a group of cruel, sadistic animals. You know, as they're eliminated one by one, and you're standing there, Hogan, and there's nobody left to help you, he's going to be there, you and him, Hogan, and then, then world champion, you're a 300-pound turkey, it's all over. Sure. Hogan, I'm there for one reason, Hogan, I'm there for you, soul, for tonight, Hogan. I will be the survivor. Over a ton of determination. I wouldn't want to be in anybody's shoes facing Andre. I'll tell you, Andre looks definitely determined. Well, I'll say this for Team Andre. This is the most subdued of any of the interviews on any of the teams here at the pay-per-view. Other than Butch Reed shouting in the background, there really isn't a lot to make fun of here. We do get comments from The Brain, The Slickster, and of course, Andre. In the spirit of the holiday, Bobby casually referring to Hulk Hogan as a 300-pound turkey. As Andre then proclaims that he's here for one reason, Jesse, to take Hulk Hogan's soul. I wrote, what the fuck is that about? Is he like the (laughs) precursor to The Undertaker? Because at the beginning of the year, remember, I'm here for one reason, to challenge Hulk Hogan to a world championship match in the WrestleMania. So at the beginning of the year, he was here for the world title. Now he's here for a soul. That's pretty dark. That's but, uh, something else. Yeah, good catch. Maybe he, he did kind of like uh, lay the groundwork for The Undertaker uh, a few years later. <laughs> if you guys are wondering why one of the main event teams cut a promo this early on in the show, well, it was to kill time while the ladies entered the ring for the next match. Yes, they all received jobber intros, all 10 of them in the ring. It's the women's champion, the sensational Sherry, leading her team of Donna Christianello. Dawn Marie and the tag team champion Glamour Girls, Leilani Kai and Judy Martin, accompanied by Jimmy Hart, their manager. On the other side, it's the fabulous Moolah, leading the charge of Velvet McIntyre, Rockin' Robin, and the Jumping Bomb Angels. That's Norio Tateno and Itsuki Yamazaki. Certainly unique for the period, but the WWF, they needed to fill the time here on the pay-per-view. You know, the first time I ever watched this, I want to be clear. I thought we'd be seeing a lot of rest holds, a lot of the usual token American lady wrestler spots of the time that tend to bore me to tears, guys. But little did I know at the time that the Bomb Angels had already been working with the Glamour Girls for months prior to this in Japan, as well as a few matches here in the United States and the WWF and the house shows. So we have that to look forward to here. I should also note before we get going here, Jesse, that Dawn Marie, this is Dawn Marie Johnston, not to be confused with the ECW, WWE's Dawn Marie, And believe me, guys, there's no confusion to be had. She also wrestled extensively (laughs) in Japan for the last couple of years as well. Not that that means anything to Vince. Then you factor in Velvet McIntyre, one of the best lady wrestlers of the 1980s, and Sherry, pretty decent herself. And this match actually has potential once you know what you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, going in, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect, but I thought it wound up being a decent match. 
One thing real quick, a little tidbit or a side note, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Jumping Bomb Angels, I don't know if you've ever watched it on the the WWE Network, um, uh, the Ultimate Show. Have you ever watched any of those where they put together like the best Survivor Series using anyone from any era? You ever see any of those shows? No, I'm not a big fan of those kind of things, but I do know that those exist on there, yeah. Okay, well, you know, I'm a sucker for stuff like that, so of course I've watched most of them probably. A lot of people watch those, probably why they made uh, them. Yeah. Well, Sam Roberts, uh, I think he's like the host of Not Sam Wrestling on their uh, his own little podcast. But uh, mm-hmm. Sam Roberts has this infatuation with the Jumping Bomb Angels. I don't know. <laughs> for any of you listeners who have watched that show, you know what I'm talking about. It's the Jumping Bomb Angels making their way into nearly every single all-time pay-per-view event ever. Yeah, he also has a thing for Bull Nakano. So. Interesting. Anyway, Jumping Bomb Angels, definitely his number one. I mean, he tries to get them on every single thing. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, the best TLC ever, the best Survivor (laughs) Series ever. He's trying to get them on there. But, hey, man, I could see why. And after we talk about this match a little bit or once you guys watch this match, you'll know why. I mean, they were the real deal. They They were the definition of ahead of their time. I'll say that much. Yeah, just some quick backstory here, not that there is much, but the Glamour Girls and Bomb Angels, they were already working the house shows, being groomed for a women's tag team title, I guess you can call it a feud, over the next several months here in the WWF, and we've seen a few of the matches thus far, so it piques my interest what they'll do here in this matchup. Now remember, also, Sherry, she had defeated Mula for the women's title back in the summer over in Houston, Texas. Mula finally returning here several months later to exact revenge by way of a tag team survival match. That certainly makes sense. Well, sure it does. (laughs) It was in the script. I'm not complaining, mind you. I'm not looking forward to a Moolah versus Sherry one-on-one return match, so I'm very happy that we get this 10 ladies tag instead. When announced here, though, Moolah receives a mixed reaction, if not negative reaction, from the crowd, save for that one fan, I don't know if you saw this, with a I heart Moolah sign. I wrote, that's got to be planted, right? I miss that. <laughs> well, Mula getting a confused reaction here from the fans is probably a good reason for that because she was never turned babyface. I guess the WWF just figured sticking her on the babyface side would just make the crowd cheer for her and maybe Sherry heal enough that fans would just applaud Mula, but that didn't work out here. The only other bit of trivia I have for this matchup is that it was rumored that Debbie Combs was planned to be the fifth member of the babyface team before being replaced by Rock and Robin within the last few weeks leading up to the pay-per-view. The WWF program magazines at the time were even hyping up Debbie Combs, and she was working with Sherry on the house shows as late as the beginning of November here. But Combs then disappears, and Rock and Robin enters. Green as grass, never before in the ring. Robin, of course, the sister of one Jake the Snake Roberts and Sam Houston. So perhaps Jake pulled some strings to get her in the door. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, that's all I knew about her, and that that wasn't until well after the fact, too, was the fact that she was related to Jake Roberts. So, yeah, uh, Green as Grass pretty much explains her role in the match, and, you know, good for her, though, getting on the card. I guess. If that's the way you look at it, I suppose good for her. As uh, Before the match gets going, Jesse Ventura makes sure to put over his new movie. Remember, he had success with The Predator earlier this year. I talked about it earlier in this episode already. Now he's in the running man. And of course, Jesse says he allowed Arnold Schwarzenegger to be part of both of those films. How kind of you, Jesse? Hey, I love running man, to be honest, not because it's, it's Jesse Ventura necessarily, right. but great movie. I think my yeah, opinion. He hey man, to randomly pop up in Hollywood and be a part of two big sh- movies of that, you know, in the same year from that era, you know, even if he wasn't a main character per se, 
it, it's still cool that Jesse, you know, gets a, a title role at, so, at some point in time in those movies. So pretty cool, Jesse Ventura. I don't know what he does after this necessarily, but right now he's riding high. Yeah, and he's very humble too, allowing Arnold Schwarzenegger to step in and take the lead role after it was offered to Jesse first. I mean, doesn't get better than that, right? What a good guy that Jesse Ventura is. As uh, Boy, does Jimmy Hart have a jacket for everything, guys? He even has a Glamour Girls jacket out here, Rocky. And I thought they did a good job. Dying, Leilani Kai, Judy Martin's hair. They were already the tag team champions. They gave him matching gear. And they gave him a manager, which told you they were very serious about this push, this feud or whatever with the Bomb Angels. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, a whole lot about their feud. I definitely didn't know that they were wrestling for months already going into this. Uh, but I do know that they wrestled. I was watching something on the network. I don't know if it was an entire year later. I mean, it was maybe later in 87, earlier in 88. But uh, the second go around when they were fighting for the titles, the Glamour Girls looked nothing like they do here at Survivor Series 87. They actually, you know, they got matching gear. They have the manager going. I don't know what it is. They just look completely different, almost tired by the time, you know, they're coming to a close. Yeah, I'm wondering if you saw their first encounter, which was on actually on a prime time earlier in 87 before they got the gimmick. Maybe that would make more sense then. Maybe it was before they got their stuff together and yeah. got the manager and the good, you know, the matching clothes. They both had dark hair in the match. Yeah, that, that would have been that would have been the summer 87, 87 prime time. Episode. Yes. The okay. Bomb Angels okay, came so over. I my facts a little long. No, that's okay. fine. Yeah, I'm just cool. It's cool that you, you know, got to watch that match as well because it was some fun stuff in that one as well. But yeah, that was their first match, I believe, that aired on TV here. That was that was before they were dubbed the Glamour Girls or given this gimmick. Uh, I'm glad they, you know, came up with something yeah. for them. They clearly were serious about getting these matches going and they'll wrestle again in a really fun one at Royal Rumble 88 as well. But we got to watch them here first as the champion and captain, Sherry, decides to start the matchup by attacking Velvet McIntyre. The McIntyre fighting the champion off and tagging to Moolah as the crowd noticeably booing the captain of the babyface side while the announcers proclaim Moolah the nastiest lady wrestler in history. Oh, yeah. She's really getting over as a babyface here, but not really. Uh, Moolah unleashes a short attack on Sherry before Donna Christianello is tagged in. Donna pushing 45 years old at this point and looking a bit rough for her age as well. But I'll give her credit. She's not shy of taking bumps here. A consummate professional. Been around the business a very long time. From there, though, we get a short taste of what the Bomb Angels are all about early on. As Velvet McIntyre back in, she wraps Christianello up in a victory roll for the first elimination. Only one minute and 57 seconds into the matchup. So we got a little taste here so far of Velvet and the Bomb Angels, but the action continues. And uh, Leilani Kai then in attacking Velvet right after the elimination of Christianello. But McIntyre introducing the WWF world to a flying Hurricane Rana. Out of the corner, how about that? As uh, Then it's a tag to Rockin' Robin, uh-oh, and she gets her first piece of action, maybe ever, in the ring. As Robin gets tossed around, mistiming spots left and right, hitting the ropes awkwardly and taking what should have been a face bump on her back. But uh, Robin, of course, she's in there with a, quite a few pros. They covered up pretty well for her. As Dawn Marie Johnston tagged in, but isn't given much time to shine. Robert nailing her with a clothesline near the throat, I should add, finishing Don Marie off with a body block for an elimination four minutes and 10 seconds. We didn't get to see a lot of old Don Marie, but man, I don't know if you're really paying attention, but Rock and Robin really rough out there. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did notice, uh, to be honest, <laughs> but 
Was this like her first match in the company ever or just her first pay-per-view? So I've heard stories and I don't have like the definitive facts down, but there were uh, Rock and Robin and Baby Doll, who was, uh, you know, valet for Jim Crockett Promotions prior to this. I guess they were both training to wrestle at the same time. I'm not sure who was training him at the at what, what whatever point, but she, uh, Baby Doll applied to try to be part of the WWF, but they went with Rock and Robbins instead. Un- you know, unfortunately, Baby Doll already had a name working for Crockett, but uh, it was Rock and Robin who got the nod. And to my knowledge, and I can't say this for fact, but I don't see her name pop up until this pay per view. So I have no idea if she had ever actually stepped foot in an actual matchup uh, and t- until this point in time. Could it have been possible? Yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah. they put her somewhere and gave her a couple of matches to get you know get 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 her uh, loose and ready to go. But this was very obvious. She had no idea what she was doing in there. At one point, they try to give her a face buster, and she takes a back bump. I mean, she's just clearly not ready for prime time. Certainly not ready for pay per view. As the babyface side, just like that, now up five to three. Dawn Marie and Donna Christianello already eliminated, and the Glamour Girls going to try to put a beating on Rock and Robin here, but. Itsuki Yamazaki tags in for the Bomb Angels. Yamazaki wakes the crowd up when she bridges to her feet. She doesn't kick out. She bridges to her feet out of a pinfall cover, then leapfrogs over Judy Martin, turns it into a sunset flip, but it doesn't stop there. She continues to dazzle the unsuspecting Richfield crowd and turns a body scissors into a victory roll. May have been the first time I've ever seen that here in the United States as Yamazaki. She's going to follow all of that up with a pair of high knees to Leilani Kai and the crowd just they they've come unglued they've come to life maybe they were feeling the way I did the first time I ever watched this match going in like we're gonna get this but these girls they woke the crowd up even Gorilla and Jesse they sounded genuinely entertained by the Bomb Angels well even this Jesse uh sitting on the couch watching (laughs) it was uh starting to be entertained when they got in the ring I, I agree completely. Yeah, they woke the announcers up. They woke the crowd up. The entire field of the match changes. The pace picks up. These girls are getting physical, and not just pull your hair physical either, guys. Nobody in the United States had seen anything like this uh, at this point in time from the women here in the U.S., and they were just eating this up. And I'm not going to lie. I, like I said, I walked into this matchup the first time thinking and responding like most of these fans did due to that moolah troop of women's matches from the decades prior. But it was the Bomb Angels that woke me up, too, made me realize that women should be able to wrestle like men. They just don't typically here in the U.S. And I was in awe. By the end of this matchup, the first time I ever saw this here, uh, they were really on par with any other superstar I'd ever seen, male or female. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for us to try to think of, of their male counterpart in the WWF at this time. Well, I mean, was anyone throwing out her and Karatas and, and, and movies, moves like this at this time, 1987? I don't know. The moves, not so much, but I mean, you have to think like the faster action of a, uh, a Ricky Steamboat or Randy Savage or a Dynamite Kid maybe, but certainly not some of these moves. We've never seen these before, and they're, they're going to continue here. Uh, anywho, Tateno tags in and comes off the top rope with a flying arm drag onto Leilani Kai, and I swear it's like we're watching a completely different matchup but I am in no way complaining, guys. These girls are really ramping it up here. Sherry, though, brought in and takes a butterfly suplex from Tateno, but then a tag back to Rock and Robin. Perfect timing, too, I thought, because they had the crowd really popping at a peak. I don't know if it could get any higher at this point. They really woke them up, so it was time to simmer them back down a little bit, tag out to the Bomb Angels as Robin continues to look, uh, unfortunately, terrible in there, landing an awful-looking monkey flip 
on one of the glamour girls. And then Sherry tags back in, and I think the heels decide it's time to get this girl out of the match. Sherry slamming Rock and Robin, and then a basic vertical suplex. Hey, what do you know how to take? A suplex? All right, here you go. Sherry delivers a <laughs> suplex, gets the one, two, three, eliminating Rock and Robin, six minutes and 50 seconds. So Robin now gone from the matchup. And if we can get Moolah out of there, we might have something going here. Yeah, agreed. I mean, what would you rate the uh, the way she took the suplex? Did she at least do that correctly? Yeah, you can't really screw it up as long as you go with the flow, Sherry. Uh, but it really did feel like if anybody who's ever been a worker knows, you, you get in there with a green person, you realize they're really green. And at that point, you're trying. Not, you're more worried for yourself than you are the other person because I don't want this person to hurt me accidentally break break my ankle or something so you, you're like what What do you know how to take suplex okay that's what we're doing and you're out of here because it seemed a little odd compared to all the other eliminations just sherry dropping a vertical suplex and eliminating rock and robin there but we get some fast-paced stuff from a lot of the girls after that robin elimination velvet continues to look great in there with leverage moves a tilt-a-whirl crossbody on Leilani Kai. I'm not sure if that's what she was going for, but that's what she lands and looked pretty cool. Mula going to even try her hands against Kai and Martin as well, two women that she trained many years ago, but she finds herself in trouble. As Mula gets in the ring, I can't tell if the fans are booing here or chanting Mula in a shocking manner. We've heard Irwin, but I, I feel like we're hearing about Mula, Mula. Either way, Mula, the most unover person in the entire match. And after having seen what the Angels and Velvet can do, the fans, they have no desire to watch Mula here in her 1950s arsenal. I mean, I can't blame them. Get the jumping bomb angels back in the ring and let them go to go the clean house. I mean, that's all I want to see. That's right. all I want to see at this point. Yeah, me too. Well, same here. And I, I was a big fan of Velvet as well, but I'll give Mula credit for this. I was watching her here, throwing a drop kick at her age, you know, pretty cool deal. And she's really laying it in very snug with her moves. She's making it look realistic. She's not flying around the ring, but at least her moves, yes, a different style, but at least it looks realistic, so I give her that much credit because we don't always see that on the house shows from the ladies, but Mula really laying it in here for the pay-per-view, so she knows what's at stake as Mula brings Yamazaki back into the matchup, but the Glamour Girls continue on the offense. Sherry even going to join in on the heel side against Yamazaki here until Itsuki manages to tag in partner Tateno, but apparently she wasn't supposed to. Oops, I tagged you, but I guess I wasn't supposed to, so they ignore that tag, and Mula comes back in instead. I wrote, Okay, as uh, Mula working over Judy Martin here, but she's caught off guard and takes a double clothesline from the Glamour Girls. One inside the ring, one on the apron. A very unique looking double clothesline. Actually, the Sheep Herders used to do that all the time. But Martin going to score the pin, eliminating the fabulous Mula. 10 minutes and 52 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that would also explain, you know, the non-tag. It's like, wait a second, aren't you supposed to go out next? <laughs> Right, that's, uh, that was my take on it. It was like, oh, I tagged you, but I guess Mula's supposed to come in to be eliminated, so we just ignore that and move on. And Mula in and eliminated, but yeah. I, you know, I did want to touch on too, though, you know, because I, I just wrote it here in the middle of this matchup for whatever reason. I guess I finally noticed it. Fink announcing all the eliminations, what's going on. It keeps you abreast of everything. You're not like, wait a minute, what happened there? Duggan and Race got what? You know, we're, we're, we're alerted after every elimination, at least here in 87, as to what's, what's happening in the ring, in case, you know, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't know. If, uh, I'm sure at some point I, I, I heard the Fink make an announcement. But, yeah, that's a good call out. Leave nothing to be uh, no confusion, I guess. Is he saying they've both been counted out or yes. he has been disqualified? I mean, is yeah. he actually saying, okay, hey, man, I like that. They should yeah. have always done that. If yeah. they stop, then 
I feel Shame like they do that. stop. Yeah, they do stop because I don't remember that in 89 or 90 anyway. But it's uh, back here to even three on three. And now we're cooking. The six best women in the match are left to shine here. The baby face is going to work over the leg of Judy Martin. But McIntyre even hooking in a Boston crab and then a surfboard. Judy manages to escape and then tagging back to the ladies champion, Sensational Sherry. And Sherry and just about dumps velvet on the back of her head and neck with a gut rich suplex. I wrote, oof. Looks like McIntyre may actually be hurt after that one. And we're right back to more Glamour Girls versus Bomb Angels action. And I'll take it. As Kai hits Tateno with a picture-perfect butterfly suplex, gets herself a two-count. As Tateno again bridges out, the timekeeper actually rings the bell on this cover. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, to signal the elimination. But the crowd boos very loudly. Clearly not a three-count. And the referee waves it off as the action continues. Yeah, I did catch that one. So I was a little uh, confused, but at least they let the action continue. So They certainly confused the timekeeper who had never seen a match like this before. Girls bridging out of uh, pinfall. Anyone, male or female, bridging out of pinfall attempts. It works. Your shoulders are off the mat. It makes sense. It's just not something they did a lot here in the United States, certainly not in the WWF. I guess those timekeepers just not used to uh, false finishes here way back in 1987. Exactly. Well, I mean, after all, we did just witness a pin after a regular suplex, so right. he probably wasn't ready for that. <laughs> uh, the action rolls on, though. Velvet and Sherry back in the ring. McIntyre lands a giant swing before executing a victory roll on the women's champion, scoring the 1-2-3, a big win. McIntyre pinning the champion, Sherry, 14 minutes, 54 seconds, the original last kicker, Velvet McIntyre. Hey, man, I think after that, she deserves a title shot. She does deserve a title shot. A la Becky Lynch. Yeah, indeed, indeed. As the Angels and Glamour Girls continue to battle it out from there some more, while Velvet McIntyre selling her back out of the ring. And I'm not sure if Velvet is actually really dedicated to selling or if she's really hurt, but I'm thinking it's the latter. She pulled her back somewhere along the way, and she's out there walking it off on on the arena floor uh, during this match at this point. But McIntyre, she's a trooper. Returns to action to do her part here on pay-per-view, trying for her third elimination of the night, using the victory roll once again. But this time, this is the greatest move in the matchup, bar none for me. Leilani Kai countering a victory roll, turning it into a slingshot ocean cyclone suplex. So you have Velvet up on her shoulders looking for the victory roll. Leilani ducks forward, and Velvet goes bouncing chest first off the top rope, back into a suplex on her back. Awesome move, and you can tell the Glamour Girls have been working in Japan because Kai pulls out a big move there, scoring a win on Velvet, 17 minutes, 20 seconds. Not sure if you remember that finish, but it was really awesome. Oh, yeah, I do. I, I do remember that. I thought it was awesome as well, man. I mean, I, ne- I had never seen anything like that. I don't know if I've really ever seen that since then. I'm not saying that no one's ever done that, but... It was kind of like one of those in the moment. It worked because of, you know, it was situational. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever, like, said, hey, let's set this move up or let me purposely do this move. Not that I know of anyway. Well, nowadays they do that all the time. They just, oh, let's just set this move up. It doesn't have to make sense now. But, no, I get what you're saying. Back in those days, you wouldn't have seen that too often. But I don't recall, honestly, ever seeing it before again. But, I'm, you know, it's been years since I watched a lot of the Joshi stuff. Maybe that's something that happens a lot over in Japan but I, I love the spot, and Leilani Kai nails it beautifully there. And it, it was a very believable finish in a men's match, much less a, a women's match here, as uh, Velvet McIntyre is eliminated. And again, what a trooper. If her back was indeed injured, taking knowing she was going to take a bump like that, just kudos to Velvet McIntyre. As we are now down to Jimmy Hart's tag team of the Glamour Girls 
versus the Jumping Bomb Angels. And a brief four-way melee breaks out with the Angels on top until Judy Martin catches Yamazaki with a knee in the back as she's running off the ropes. Kai then slamming Itsuki and goes up top, but she misses a flying splash as Yamazaki makes the big tag to partner Tateno, who goes straight up to the top rope and hits Kai with a high cross body press for the elimination. 18 minutes and 35 seconds. Judy Martin then rushing in to take over, but it isn't too long before she ends up taking a flying knee drop from Yamazaki as well, and a double backdrop by the Angels from there, and that's when manager Jimmy Hart, he's worried. Jess, he jumps up onto the apron to run distraction, but that too doesn't work. Tateno drop-kicking Jimmy Hart off the apron. Great bump, by the way, Jimmy. And Yamazaki comes off the top rope with a flying clothesline on Martin for the final elimination. Your survivors, the Jumping Bomb Angels. 20 minutes and 14 seconds, and I wasn't really offended by the time. Yeah, I was going to say 20 minutes. I mean, they got more time than some of the, the what what they call divas. So, I mean, well, probably hey, for good I, reason. I was okay with it. No, yeah, I was fine. Yeah, I, pretty, very, very good reason. <laughs> I remember a couple of those divas elimination matches. I wish they went a little shorter than they did. Just saying, guys. Shorter than five minutes? But this this <laughs> was kidding. probably. I, I don't know. This was better. Well, they got to a point, I don't know if you remember, but there was a Survivor Series where they had all these elimination matches, and they got to the Divas match, and it wasn't an elimination match. They decided at least that day that it was just one pinfall. Let's just get these girls out of here. One pin in the matches, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That's crazy. Was it, did they uh, last minute turn it into a bra and panties match? Well, I don't remember, but that's always possible. I think I could say yes and, and never be wrong when it comes to a question like that. I mean, that's just how it rolled back then. Couldn't get away with that now. Yeah. Yeah, that's something we'll never see again. But this matchup was better on so many levels than what I originally expected the first time around. Lots of great innovative offense. Most of the girls, they weren't afraid of working snug here. It was far better than any house show opener that you would ever see, that's for sure, with the guys. The dead weight eliminated early, and things really picked up once the Bomb Angels tagged in. Crowd was accepting of the match, but after that initial display by Yamazaki, they fell in love. With the Bomb Angels, best way I could explain it. The fans, they seemed to wake up and become more invested in the matchup when the pace started to pick up with those girls. We got just enough taste of the two ladies' teams here to have everybody interested in their title match at the Royal Rumble in 1988, which also doesn't disappoint. Yeah, I mean, after that, after watching that match now, after not seeing it for so many years, I was pleasantly surprised. I don't recall uh, me being, uh, you know, that interested in the match, but I, I definitely was, and it took me down a rabbit hole, and I find myself watching the Jumping Bomb Angels and matches in Japan, and then when they went into their singles careers, and like before I knew it, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning because I'm just sitting here watching all these Jumping Bomb Angels matches. It was well, that's, crazy. Dude. That's pretty damn cool. That's cool that, you know, wrestling can still do that for you all these years later. It's cool for me that I've seen everything I've seen, you know, on tape or on TV nowadays, and I can still go back to a 1987 video and watch it and still be entertained by just what they did here. It's, it was unbelievable for the time and elsewhere, you know, Velvet McIntyre, she looked like she might've injured her back legit, like I said, but she was a trooper getting the pin over Sherry on pay-per-view. It had to put Velvet in a spot to be a contender for the title, as you said, after decades as a heel, the fans, though, they just weren't buying into Moolah as a baby face, especially when they didn't actually turn her face. And she barely had interaction with Sherry at all in the match, if at all, considering this was supposed to be Moolah's revenge. 
Yeah, I mean, we know there was at least one fan in the crowd that was cheering for Moolah. Art Moolah. <laughs> I'm not going to speculate as to who that was, but it was a smart move, though, to put someone with the name value of Moolah in that captain spot to sell the matchup, though, because they really didn't know who they were going to put underneath in those teams. But this match was clearly not about Moolah. Really good ladies match for so many American women to be involved, but it was clearly about the Glamour Girls and, of course, the Jumping Bomb Angels. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was every bit of more than what I expected. Not every bit of what I expected, because like I said, I was pleasantly surprised and I'm glad I watched it. I'm not going to lie. In my younger days, I may have probably fast forwarded through the women's match, but I wanted to give it its due. And I'm glad I did because I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie either. I'm sure there were times where I have fast-forwarded through the ladies' matchup, but I, there were probably also times where I didn't watch the whole Kogan matchup as well. There, I want to get to that tag team match, man. That's what <laughs> I was the Tony Man tag, if you will. So, but I mean, 88s. I yeah, thought we exactly, I was thought, I was thought 88s was better, favorite. but I, I love 87s as well. Uh, but moving <laughs> forward here for the ladies, Sherry, she's going to continue her dominance as the women's champion, at least on the house shows. Not a lot on TV. Uh, for quite some time to come, working most of 1988 against the very green Rock and Robin. Kudos to Sherry for that. And if I remember correctly, this also marked the swan song for Moolah in the WWF rings. I suppose it was time Vince took her aside and said, Moolah, it's time to move on, pal. You're 64 years old. I don't believe she returns again until the Attitude Era, at least in a wrestling capacity. So this was basically it for Moolah. So uh, she drops the belt to Sherry over the summer. She comes back to work the pay-per-view, loses again, and then Moolah's pretty much gone from the WWF circuit anyway. And sadly, we won't see much more of Velvet McIntyre either, though, even though she pinned Sherry, and she had a tremendous showing here herself. Velvet doesn't really return a whole lot after this, unfortunately. Uh, Dawn Marie, she was a one-off, and no offense to her or anyone else for that matter. She was the definition of filler here. They just needed another lady on the team. They could have plugged just about anyone else into that spot. And it would have meant the same thing. Donna Christianello, 45 years old at this point, but a well-respected veteran. Probably just a moolah call to fill in a spot in the matchup. But she definitely earned the spot after years, a couple of decades or more into the business. And still sad, though. No Debbie Combs, who had been working Sherry up until a week or two before the pay-per-view on the house shows. Debbie would have been a major upgrade to Rock and Robin, but I get it. They were grooming Robin straight out of training. What does uh, Rockin' Robin's career look like after Survivor Series 87? Well, we know she beat asking Sherry. Asking for a friend. Yeah, she's asking for Yeah, she. Uh, we know she beat Sherry eventually for the w- women's title. She defends the title at Rumble 89. You know, she sings America the Beautiful at WrestleMania 5. Tremendous job. Uh, and then, uh, not a whole lot of Rockin' Robin after that. That was pretty much the end of Rockin' Robin. Uh, so she retires the okay, ladies' so title, I guess. She made a little run prop for her. Yeah. So she had a little time there with the, the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, but that's that's what's to come, guys, for those curious of Rock and Robin in 1988 and beyond. As uh, we head off now, oh, it's coming, Jesse, the big one, the 20-man tag. And right now, it's time to hear from Craig DeGeorge as he talks to the team of the Hart Foundation. Thank you very much. The tag team matchup of the Survivor Series is only moments Away. Strike Force will lead one team against this team led by the former champion of the Hart Foundation. Bobby Heenan, you will have your work cut out for you going against a team led by the tag team champs. Our work cut out for us. It's going to be a piece of cake. It's going to be a piece of cake. Nobody's ever been more ready than these teams here put together. Nobody. And I hope they're ready. Ready for the beating of their life. 
hard. I'm wondering if that's a bad omen. Bad omen? Bad luck? No, no bad luck. We, this Motley crew, we don't need luck. We don't need luck at all. All right, well, I'll tell you another thing. Well, the heat of it's going to be some matchup indeed. You bet it's going to be a strong matchup. You can bet anything you want, but there's only going to be one winner. Wait a minute, Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart. You look a bit disheveled, Jimmy. Somebody's going to get hurt. Nobody does this to me. Let's hurt somebody. Help me with my check again. Let's hurt somebody, baby. Nobody does. Gentlemen, gentlemen, I am noticing one thing. Where are the Bolsheviks? Where are the Bolsheviks? They're in the ring with Slick. They're getting ready to sing the Russian national anthem, and we're getting ready. We're getting ready to survive. So there it was, the George standing by with the team captain, Hart Foundation, and their team. Bobby Heenan, again positioned right in front, in front of the team, in front of the team captains, no less, to cut the promo, and rightfully so. And if you thought teams of five were hard to keep up with in the interviews, try watching 10 men after they've just snorted enough coke to make Tony Montana jealous. Jesus. Oh, my God, all these guys going nuts in the camera here. As the Islanders, they hug. They're hugging each other, slapping each other back and forth. Smash, he wants a high five from everyone in the uh, in the interview segment. The entire team shouting, by the way. Even Greg Valentine has a little personality here. So that's telling you something. Yeah, that's definitely a little out of character for Valentine, man. I wrote here, you know there's trouble. Indeed, it. absolutely. And I wrote here, you know there's trouble. When Jim the Anvil Neidhart is your go-to guy for the interview. And Bobby Heenan, of course. Yeah, baby. But finally, Jimmy Hart stumbles into the picture. Remember, he was just part of that ladies matchup. He got dropkicked. Great bump again, Jimmy, by the way, off the apron. I, I didn't get your take on that, but it was a great bump by Jimmy Hart to sell the Bomb Angels there. He didn't have a problem being a businessman. Oh, man, the crowd loved it when you would take a bump. And he knows how to take a bump and really sell it, too, man. I think Mr. Perfect might have learned a little bit from Jimmy Hart. Yeah, I feel like there probably were managers that might have said, I ain't taking no bump from no woman, but Jimmy Hart did not have a problem here. Did an awesome job. Got the bomb angels over with that. And, of course, he knows that they have matches coming up, so it only makes sense. It's good business to get these girls over, so very wise move there. But Jimmy Hart stumbling into the interview here from that matchup that he just lost. Hart, by the way, now 0 for 2, hockey talk man out. And, of course, the Glamour Girls gone as well. So Hart here for the third and final time here tonight in this tag team matchup. And a funny little note, it's, I don't know if you caught this, but while Jimmy's ranting and raving, he actually switches his jackets from the Glamour Girl getup to the Heart Foundation coat. Time to put on the new one for the new matchup. Craig to George notices that the Bolsheviks are missing. Well, why'd you have to bring that up for? Is it, and is it sad? I don't know about you. I mean, I'm sure you weren't even looking. But is it sad that I totally missed that the Bolsheviks weren't there, but I was wondering where the hell Johnny V was? <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I didn't really uh, notice the Bolsheviks were missing until they called it out at the end there. But I but think we know was, where they are. And I think it was more so I know what's about to happen with Johnny V. So maybe that's why I was looking for him. But he's been in the back, literally in the back of all of the big giant promos we've seen on TV leading in. And now here, Johnny V, not even part. Well, not everybody can fit, pal. So you can just sit over to the side because we're not going to use you after today anyway. Poor Johnny Valiant. But uh, right. Bobby Heenan informing Craig DeGeorge, where are the Bolsheviks? The Bolsheviks are in the ring with their manager Slick and ready to sing the Russian national anthem. But again, I ask, where was Johnny V? Damn it. And off to the ring we go. Jesse Ventura rises for the singing of the Soviet national anthem. 
Gorilla refusing to join in as uh, Jesse keeps trying to grab him by his arm, pull him up. Gorilla, you're not budging. Monsoon's sitting there having another slice of peanut butter pie as we see the introduction of the heel unit out to the new demolition theme. And out comes the demolition, the Islanders, the dream team. Of course, Bolsheviks already in the ring, but hold on a fucking minute. There's Johnny V. He's still here, Jesse. So why the hell wasn't he in the promo backstage? Might have something to do with the fact that this is his last night in the company, at least as a manager. Yep, guys, Luscious Johnny would be gone following this pay-per-view, no longer managing the Dream Team as they will go their separate ways. Valentine with Jimmy Hart, Dino Bravo with Frenchie Martin, but talk about your days being numbered. JV clearly there. He's there. He's entering the ring with these guys, but they don't even let him into the promo to make room for everyone else. Poor Johnny V. After years of service, two-time tag team champion, playing college baseball with Vince McMahon, and it's a big, ha-ha, fuck you, pal. Yeah, no screen time for you, Johnny. Poor JV. You know what I You know what I, I recall yeah. is I couldn't get over, because you don't see this anymore. You just don't have, you know, the, the classic managers like you used to back in the day. Of course, sure. you got your Paul Heymans and, you know, whatnot. But, sure. I mean, look who we got here, man. You know, Mr. Fuji, Jimmy Hart, Johnny V, Bobby Heenan, Slick. I mean... There was just as many managers as there were guys, like wrestlers. It was, it was, it was awesome. I, I miss those guys. I miss those great. days. Every team was represented by a different manager. It was so cool. And that's the who's who of managers, too, man. Absolutely. Well, it uh, was pretty much all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Last out, it's the team captains, the Hart Foundation, as we head to Mean Gene Oakland. He's standing by with the entire team of Strike Force. Ladies and gentlemen, most awesome array of manpower ever assembled the Survivor Series. A total of 10 teams, 20 men all. Strike Forcer, Tilson, Tarek Martel, Catherine, the Curvies, the Young Stallions to my right, the Rizzo's and former tag team champions in the British Bulldogs. Your opponents, Tito Santana, out of the ring, waiting for you and your team members. That's exactly right. Did you know we're going to be going up against the Ventures? You're looking at a team, and we don't care which one of us is in the list because this team is going to win, baby. Yeah! Oh, and don't inspire Rick Martel any special tragedy. The moment has arrived. Look at us. Our blood is running hot. We're ready for him. And our motto is unity for victory. We're going to stick together for survival. And believe me, there's only one way out for us. For our team is to be the winning team. Right. I see something here I did not see in their opponents, and that is total unity. They are a team. What a team. So there it is. We hear from the new tag team champions, both Tito Santana and Rick Martel. And how's this for a shock? The British Bulldogs and Rougeau brothers standing next to each other and having conversation, or at least pretending to. I don't think anybody really knows what anyone is saying here in these crazy promos. They're just rambling on. And just think a year from now, the Rougeaus, they'd be eliminated from the Survivor Series match early on in order to avoid any shoot altercations with the Bulldogs on their way out of the company. But the highlight of this interview for me was jumping Jim Brunzel, flapping his quote-unquote B-wings in the late seconds of the interview. Yeah, no comment on what I think about the the Killer Bees promos in general. I think I 
said enough about that on uh, episode 100. But I will say this, man. I know not all the guys are around anymore. You know, God rest their souls. But I would love if someone would ask any of these guys that were part of these 1987 promos before, you know, their matches. What exactly were you guys saying? Like, just to know if they were actually conversating or if they were literally just like... Move, moving their mouth and making noise. I don't know how many of them would actually remember, but that would be really interesting to get a hold of somebody that might remember and ask them, what was the directive given to you prior to these promos? And, and show them the promo and ask them, what the hell was going on here? I don't know, man. It was the 80s, man. Everything's a blur. Everything's a blur, man. As uh, all the baby faces, team, all the baby face teams enter to the British Bulldogs theme for those Curious, yes, indeed, Matilda is out there as well. And then we queue up Girls in Cars, the instrumental version, to play the new WWF Tag Team Champion Strike Force to the ring. Of course, Strike Force just three weeks ago defeating the Hart Foundation for those tag team titles on television. And away we go with the big 20 man tag team matchup Hart Foundation, Islanders, Demolition. My God, listen to this. The Bolsheviks and the, well, they're, I guess they're not new anymore. The Dream Team, Greg Valentine, Dino Bravo, accompanied by, as you said, Jimmy Hart, Bobby Heenan, Mr. Fuji, Slick, and Johnny V, respectively. Meanwhile, on the other side, it's the WWF Tag Team Champion Strike Force, leading the team of the British Bulldogs, the Rougeau Brothers, the Killer Bees, and the Young Stallions make it to the pay-per-view. Yeah, where's all their managers? Is there some reason why the faces don't need managers? Uh, baby I'm faces, dumbfounded. Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of these babyface teams certainly need a manager to talk for them, that's for sure. Uh, I would agree with that. I, I would argue um, almost all of them. I mean, British Bulldogs. Talking to you with your baby face promo. I mean, the Bulldogs were okay, and they had that uh, British, uh, you know, accent charm to them. But really, they weren't even a great promo. But everybody else, they certainly could have uh, uh, used a manager here. Maybe the manager's on the wrong side of the matchup. But my first observation here is the baby face side. How many similar plug and play type teams there were here in the WWF for the good guys? Very similar in many ways for these teams, especially with their generic promos you were just talking about. I'm talking about the Rougeos, the Stallions, the Killer Bees. You could technically lump Strike Force into that category as well if they weren't champions at this point, but eerily similar in general are all of these teams. Bulldogs obviously stand out here. Then on the heel side, it's all sorts of different shit going on, though. Yeah, I mean, the heel side has my two favorite tag teams of all time in Demolition and Heart Foundation. Uh-huh. So I'm rooting for the heels. I hope they win. Well, I'm going to agree with that, but it's just so funny. You see all these milk toast baby face teams. I mean, their, their gear looks a little different, but they're almost identical as far as the team goes. And then on the other side, you got the makeshift Bret Hart, the, the technician, Anvil, the powerhouse, the Islanders. Well, they're Islanders. Demolition. I don't know what they are, but they're awesome. You got Russians. You got the new dream team. I mean, everybody's so different. Different dynamics there on the heel side. The baby face is almost all repeat pattern team. Yeah, I mean, they all got that. I mean, you think of a baby face, clean shaven, you know, good physique, you know, happy go lucky. You're right, man. I mean, most everyone on the face side does have that going on for them. Yeah, so I, I don't care if we ever there. get a title shot. I'll just sit here and smile. Sure, why not? Uh, but yeah, now, I'll now. Just look good and uh, <laughs> have the girls cheer for me. There you go. <laughs> and now we are cooking, guys. 20 guys in the ring, 10 teams. Remember, when one member of a team is eliminated, the other member must leave the ring as well. A unique concept and a sea of humanity in that ring. Quite a spectacle as the teams start to settle in here. And I'm not going to lie, looking at all of this talent in the ring at once, it has me hyped to watch the matchup. 
Uh, this may be the only time five managers stood at ringside together as well, guys, as the Hart Foundation stole the belts from the Bulldogs earlier here this year and Strikeforce just recently defeating the Hart Foundation for that gold. Islanders, they also have their issues recently yeah. with Strikeforce. Oh, nothing. I was just going to say I'm still kind of tripping how uh, Jim the Anvil supposedly tapped out or, you know, gave up to a Boston Crab. Still can't get over that. Yeah, very interesting. But I digress. I'd, li- I'd really like to hear the, the thought process behind that from someone in the know. But the Islanders also out here, they have recent issues with Strike Force as well. So we've got some tag team rivalries going on to some degree anyway. Not many, but some. As we kick things off with Nikolai Volkov, odd choice, and Rick Martell in the ring. Nikolai holding Martell in the air with a one-headed choke. Pretty impressive to get things going. Then it's Tito Santana, Boris Zukov tagged in by their partners to take things over. So interesting story here early on, partners tagging their own partners, but that won't last long. As Zukov has only been with the WWF a couple of months at this point, so he'll likely be protected here. Or maybe not. Flying forearm by Tito Santana and booyah, the Bolsheviks are gone. One minute and 43 seconds into the matchup, I wrote, holy balls. Wasn't expecting that one. It was a surprising first elimination, given the amount of guys out there. Didn't seem necessary for somebody to go out so early in this one. Yeah, especially since he's only been with the company for a couple of months. And I think there was a very similar, not to jump ahead, but a few years later, there was a very similar uh, quick elimination with a Tito Santana forearm. Was it Warlord in 1990? Yeah, in the, uh, in the match of survival or whatever. In the final match. Yes. Yeah, yes. the very last match there. So uh, that, that was kind of reminiscent of that, you know, looking back. But um, I think Boris might have actually lasted longer. Oh, quite a bit longer. If it was a minute and a half. Yeah, Warlord yeah, <laughs> lasted about 10 seconds. But Hogan made sure to get his punch in before Tito hit that forearm. Hogan knew what he was doing. It was all me, dude. Right, because it was his punch. Sure. His punch right. softened him up, man. It was right, for the, Absolutely. You had to rock the Warlord for Tito to count, you know, capitalize. But it is what it is. Boris Zukov eliminated less than two minutes into the matchup. And the Bolsheviks are gone. The only thing I can think of is they're trying to clear up space on the ropes. So the guys can actually, you know, run off the ropes and things here. Maybe if Nikolai wanted to last longer, though, he wouldn't have tagged in his job or partner. I mean, he did have a lot of other guys to tag in here, and he chose Boris after all. Boris, no Iron Sheik. If only the Sheik hadn't got caught with all of that weed and cocaine with Jim Duggan back in the summer. And speaking of cocaine, the Iron Sheik would have been a big hit on this show in those promo segments anyway. Oh, I would have loved to hear what he had to say. <laughs> how do, how do even know? Oh my God, that would have been tremendous. That would have been a great iron yeah. sheet cutting one of those. Uh, I mean, from a, go ahead, man. I was just going to say, I mean, this didn't have anything to do with the sheik, but yes. uh, I want you to finish your thought after I say this. Mm-hmm. From a tactical standpoint, I mean, think about it. You wouldn't want to tag your own partner into the match. I right. mean, unless you were sure that they were about to you know, get the victory or something, because if you want to be the last team standing, tag in one of the other teams. Well, that's, that's another way. My own, I don't know. No, I agree. Well, point. obviously, this is all, you know, fake psychology, but that makes sense, too. Hey, I don't want to be in the ring. Let's let you guys, you know, we're of attrition here. We're just going to hang out out here. And, you know, when, when everybody's softened up, then we'll come in. But I also get the, the point of view they're coming from early on. Hey, we're familiar with our partners, so that's our go-to also. That's who we trust. But I, I, I like your side of things as well. Yeah. As uh, the match continues on, after the Russians' demise, as Axe ambushes Tito Santana immediately after Zukov is eliminated. Some good offense here from Axe, but Santana able to tag to Jacques Rougeau. And Jacques looks specifically good here early on, I wrote, but the tags 
and start picking up with over a dozen guys tagging into the matchup. There we go. And just that quick, by my count, 15 of the 18 guys remaining out there have been tagged into the matchup. The only guys remaining, Greg the Hammer Valentine, Bret Hart, and Ray Rougeau waiting to be tagged in at that point. And I'm surprised they didn't use the quick tag spot before ousting the Bolsheviks. Yeah, I mean, it was good that they got so many guys involved early. I, I was loving it, you know, the the back and forth, you know, the quick tags. I mean, just just the sight of 20 guys standing around the ring, that's, you know, something you don't see. I've seen 20 guys in the ring, you know, for Battle right, Royals, sure. but I don't know, man. It was awesome. I was eating it up. I was eating it up as a kid, and I'm still eating it up as an adult, man. I yeah, love that, man. something special about it. Even though some of the teams are, you know, not the greatest teams of all time, it's just those 20 bodies. They fit the part. It looks great, and... Uh, the match goes on here, though. There's a short but stiff altercation here. Oh, my gosh. Between Haku and the Dynamite Kid during the mix. Jacques Rougeau, though, winds up back in the ring with Axe of Demolition again, countering Axe's backdrop by backflipping over Axe and landing on his feet. Jacques attempting a reverse crossbody from the middle rope, but Axe ducking out of the way. Even when he misses a move in this matchup, Jacques Rougeau looking great tonight. Great bump here, but it's irrelevant now as Axe going to take advantage of Jacques his failed crossbody, making the cover, and the Rougeau brothers are eliminated. Five minutes and 48 seconds, and I noted this. Raymond Rougeau never even tagged into the match. And with all those quick tags, there's just no excuse for that. It leads me to believe that Ray must have been working with an injury here. And if you look at those house show results around this time, the Rougeaus, they missed an awful lot of time on the road. They were often on the road for weeks at a time in October and November, and they missed damn near all of December up until the holidays. So I have to think that injury played a part, but I haven't come across it yet in my research. But nevertheless, the Rougeaus eliminated, freeing up some room on the apron at least, though not very much. And it's four versus four. That's tag teams, guys. It's eight versus eight in the men's department. 16 men still out there, and the Rougeau brothers eliminated. Ray Rougeau never even tagged in. Bet you didn't notice. You know, actually, I did notice, and oh, this you? isn't just to go against you know, what, no. what you said. No, I'm curious, yeah. I noticed that he wasn't in there yet. You know, I, I obviously I noticed Bret Hart didn't make it in during all those, Which you know, weird. the hot tag spots. Yeah, that, that kind of confused That's me. That's my guy. Right. But yeah, the Ray Rougeau thing, I mean, that would be the only explanation that I could think of is that he had something going on. You know, why not get him involved? So, yeah, you pro- you're probably onto something with the injury. And the Rougeau's eliminated early as well, so that might have had something to do with it. Jacques, basically the only one out there working at this point. But Ray Rougeau here to, at least in spirit, but the Rougeau's eliminated now. And one thing I've noticed is that every man in this match is on their game tonight. Everyone looking good. Lots of energy to be had by all. Dynamite Kid, snap suplexing Axe to begin the next fall. Some more quick tags from there take place. There seems to be some confusion between Neidhart and Jimmy Powers. And the result? is Jimmy Powers taking a double-team move from the Anvil and Haku that could have been really bad. But Powers paid for his mistakes, let's just say, as Valentine, for the first time, finally tags in at about the eight-minute mark in the matchup. And the heel's going to work over Paul Roma, and then the Dynamite Kid also taking a beat down. But Dynamite, he ends up on the apron in the heel corner, and this, this really sucked. Demolition began pounding away relentlessly on Dynamite Kid, who's hanging out there on the apron on the ropes. And the next thing I know, a bell rings. And Gorilla Monsoon says that Smash shoved the referee. The camera position is bad in this one, unless you know exactly what you're looking for. Smash does indeed shove referee David Hepner twice and then knocks him down on the second time. 
and demolition are indeed disqualified only nine minutes and seven seconds into the matchup. That's you must you, you don't even have my notes, and that is the next word in my notes. Boo lame weak. <laughs> or as we used to say in the yeah, trading man. cards world, I call this hoops. A very hoops moment. Very cheap. Yeah, yeah man, hoops. Five cents each. Hoops basketball cards. Yeah. And that's what I wrote here. I wrote boo, lame, weak, hoops. Uh, very lame elimination here. Demolition really not even caught on camera. Smash tossing the referee. And Demolition disqualified just like that. I get DQing Demolition. You don't want to pin them. I agree with the DQ, but it was too early in the match, and I just didn't like the way they did it. Oh, I agree completely, man. I was rooting for Demolition and Hard Foundation to win the match. So when I saw them get disqualified, I right off the bat was kind of left a foul taste in my mouth. I mean, it but was, I mean, I'm glad they didn't take a pin. Right. Not that it matters. I just wish they would have lasted a little longer, got to do a little bit more, uh, hit their uh, hit their finisher on somebody, you know, something, man. Give me something. Yeah, I mean, it was like out of nowhere, no build to it, no particular reason behind it other than to save Demolition from being pinned. I thought it was a little early to get rid of a team of their caliber, but the DQ, it could have easily worked later in the match, just the same as it did here when things were getting more, quote-unquote, desperate for the heels. But one of the best parts of the match, one of the best teams in the match, just gone a quarter of the way into it. I'm just not a fan of the booking. Or maybe start setting something up with Strike Force. I mean, Demolition is going to be your future, you know, tag team champions. Maybe they didn't know it at the time. Who knows? Uh, I don't know what their reasoning is, man. I don't, I don't pretend to know. So the demos are eliminated as Bret Hart hits the ring for the first time and delivers a pile driver on his stampede cohort, that <laughs> lousy, no good, stinking hyena, the dynamite kid. And it gets to get him a two count here. Hitman finally in the ring. Jesus Christ, where are we at? Ten minutes into the matchup. Welcome to the match, Hitman. Yeah, no kidding, man. About time you got in there, Brett. I, I don't know what that's about. Love the Maybe impression. Is, oh, sorry if you didn't like it, guys. But uh, the Hitman, now in the matchup, his heart misses a shoulder charge into the corner. Hits the post, and Dynamite Kid makes the tag out to Jimmy Powers. Really, that's where he goes? Because I know when I'm in trouble, Jesse, that's who I'm going to tag in. Tag in Jimmy Powers. As uh, Tama, now in for the Absolutely. heels. Absolutely, indeed. Tama now in for the heels as well, and he has fun no-selling Jimmy Powers, while Jesse Ventura continues to pronounce the name, it's Toma. As Gorilla finally corrects Jesse on the pronunciation, no, Jess, it's Tama. He's only been using the fucking name for over a year. Get with it, body. As uh, Martel tags in from there, before too long, he locks Toma into a Boston Crab. The same move Martel used to defeat the Tag Team Champion Heart Foundation. But Martel, what he doesn't notice, that Tama had already tagged in the Anvil. Nightheart comes in and drills Martel in the back of the head with the clothesline. And then Tito Santana going to tag in, hits the Anvil with the flying forearm. One, two, but Bret Hart in, breaks it up with an elbow off the middle rope. One of my moves. And the Anvil going to roll over on top, getting the cheap win, eliminating the tag team champion Strike Force. Another shocker. 12 minutes into the matchup, Hart Foundation getting a little semblance of revenge here, but man, it just it kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it this early. Arriba. Yeah, one of the top two teams in the, you know, on the babyface, not only are the tag team champions, the Bulldogs, the former champions, but they're the top two tag teams on the babyface side, and Strike Force already eliminated. Yeah, I mean, putting the tag champs out that early, it's almost as bad as putting Demolition out that early, but 
Hey, man, what happens when they meet up next year? I wonder. We'll wait and see. WrestleMania, a few months to go, but we'll be getting there fairly soon. But, yeah, it's just odd. Some of the bigger-name teams going out early, and then the next five or six minutes are reserved for beating the crap out of the Young Stallions. I wish I could have been in on that. And after Jimmy Powers and Paul Roma are done doing what they did best, taking a beating, things pick up when Bret Hart and Davey Boy get in the ring, Smith hitting Hart with a big press slam, and then a minute later, Smith hits Haku with the running power slam. Going to get him a two count there. Three years later, that'd be a finisher, buddy, that running power slam. But for now, Smith's still going on, hits a suplex on Haku, and this is a fun one, Dynamite Kid coming off the middle rope, with a diving headbutt into the skull of Haku, the kid actually selling the move like he injured himself, knocked himself out. That's just how tough Haku was. You did a move to him, and you hurt yourself. Ventura notes that you don't go to the head of those South Island boys as Haku gets to his feet, nailing Dynamite with that awesome thrust kick to eliminate the Bulldogs. 19 minutes and 56 seconds. Yeah, well, I mean, Dynamite Kid did what he's supposed to do when he tries to headbutt a Samoan, right? Earlier in the match, actually, yeah, just maybe a minute or two before this, Davy Boy gets tagged in and headbutts Haku three straight times and with no, you know, no ill effects. So I thought that was a little, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a point where they get headbutt crazy on Haku in, in this match and guys are just trying to pull shit out of their ass and Jimmy Powers tags in and follows up with a headbutt to Haku himself. And power sell, doesn't right, sell. Yeah, uh, Davy Boy. <laughs> Davy and, Boy tags him. And yeah. So and, right after three headbutts from Davy Boy, he tags in Powers, who then proceeds to do another headbutt with no ill effects. Right. It, <laughs> what was the best part of that was Gorilla uh, Monsoon on commentary. If you know what you're listening to, Gorilla kind of shitting on it. Like, man, even Jimmy Powers is throwing headbutts on Aku. You know, like he's like <laughs> Gorilla in his own way even saying, "Yeah, I mean, Gorilla is basically saying." <laughs> All right, guys, this is a bit fucking much. Uh, is basically what I got out yeah. of that anyway. And with the Bulldogs and Strike Force already gone halfway through halfway through the match, and the Bulldogs and Strike Force already gone, that leaves nobody of major interest on the babyface side of things. I mean, seriously, they eliminated all of those other teams early so we could get stretched out Young Stallions beatdown clinics. And as fun as that sounds, guys, it wasn't. Yeah, totally agree, man. I would have much rather seen the Bulldogs, even the Rougeos. I wish they'd come back in the match. You know, any of any of the teams, Strike Force. Yeah, but we're stuck with uh, the Bees and um, the, the Young Stallions. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But before we keep going on, though, believe it or not, guys, for those who have only seen the Coliseum video version of this match, maybe you know where I'm going with this. You've never seen the British Bulldogs elimination. That's right. Coliseum video does a chop job. That includes the omission of the Bulldogs elimination. Inexcusable, considering what we're about to watch. It is, man, because that's probably why it took me off guard uh, <laughs> seeing the end, how they went out, you know, with the headbutt from Dynamite right. and all that. I Maybe. was thinking to myself, I don't remember them going out like that. And then come to find out, I probably never remembered them going out at all. <laughs> well, thankfully, they didn't just have Haku roll over and pin Dynamite. At least they got up and did the Haku kick, which anybody will buy as a finisher. So... I can't argue that part anyway, but Dynamite's right. selling it like, you know, he'd been blasted from a shotgun after, you know, delivering the move himself. And like you said, nobody else was selling it that way, so it was kind of odd. But with so many top-level teams going out so early, the match it can't last much longer, right? Right. And right. while a year ago, the Bees may have been relevant in this position, at, at this point in their tenure, not so much. 
But that's what I have left to root for here. I'm a babyface fan. If I'm a babyface fan, I got to root for the Killer Bees, I guess. And Ventura predicting on commentary that the Stallions will be the next ones eliminated and the Bees are going to take a walk. A la hockey talk, man. I wrote, hmm, what if the Bees just walked out now, left the Stallions to fend for themselves? Turn the Bees heel. Use the masks for evil or maybe beeville, if you will. <laughs> Love it. Could have worked. Would have been better than in this shit. Hey, man, I agree, dude. I agree with you. I mean, I'm not really trying the to crap on the, the match. Only thing that made interesting this <laughs> no, no, the, the match was it was solid. I'm not trying to crap on the match. It's just some of the people involved, what they could have done with them. As the match progresses, Jimmy Powers taking another ass beating by the Dream Team and then the Hart Foundation. Bret Hart then tying Powers in the Tree of Woe as Jim Brunzel has had enough rushing in to attack the heels, though Brunzel only causes a distraction. Have he learned after all these years? And Powers going to take even more punishment. Maybe they did that on purpose. Uh, from there, Dino Bravo hitting his patented side suplex on Jimmy Powers and tagging out to the hammer. Greg Valentine in attempting the figure four, but Powers going to kick him off. Valentine going after it again, but Jimmy gets the tag off to Paul Roma. But I assume Greg is supposed to be oblivious to the tag being made because as he tries to put Powers in that figure four again, and as Valentine bends down to hook Jimmy's leg, Roma comes flying off the top rope with a great-looking sunset flip to pin the hammer, 23 minutes and 38 seconds. Great spot, great elimination there. But unfortunately, it's just a lot of beatdown to get there, but I did like that elimination. Yeah, and they even the odds, you know, two teams on two, and Glory gets the win. Glory indeed. Maybe a couple Paul few, few years. Uh, Paul Roma, yeah, I got you. <laughs> As, uh, Paul, Paul Roma good, gets the glory. I guess I should have said it better. <laughs> well, every well, everybody involved there, they did a great job from Powers laying there on his back doing absolutely nothing and to Greg Valentine bending over, making it look good, making it look realistic. And, of course, Roma always was pretty good off that top rope. That sunset flip did a great job of eliminating the new Dream Team. And this was a huge upset when you're watching it for the first time. Spot was good, very fluid. But the way the hammer was, was hooking Powers and Roma – he came over the top. It made it look even more realistic. Just a great sequence in general. Stallions, they get a big rub here by pinning a former Intercontinental and Tag Team Champion in Greg Valentine. Bravo, former Tag Team Champion long ago as well. It doesn't hurt the Dream Team because they're no more. This was it. So long, Johnny V. Thanks for coming. At least it gets a pay-per-view payday on the way out. Whatever that would have looked like back in the uh, 1987 for a sixth-ranked manager in the WWF. Yeah, no idea about what the managers were getting paid, but just going back to the finish, I mean, it was a good spot. And like you said, the tag team was about to break up, you know, the dream team. So, you know, they didn't look bad. And at the same time, that's a good win for the the young Stallions, man. They needed uh, to cement, you know, like some kind of legitimacy, you know. And now it's down to four on four. The odds back to even. It's the Islanders and Hart Foundation versus the Stallions and the Bees with the tide turning back and forth both sides. Roma hitting the hitman with a Jerry Lawler-esque flying fist drop. Gets himself a two count. Roma actually takes the heat twice during this period of the matchup as Jesse Ventura still insists on referring to Tama as Toma all throughout the matchup. Haku, though, missing a corner charge, and Roma hits an arm drag on Haku and decides to hold onto an arm bar because, yeah, that'll get shit done at this stage of the matchup. An arm bar, Roma. Haku, though, he gets right up and hits an impressive Standing dropkick on Roma. Gorilla then comments that, I'd like to see the big anvil do that, Jess. And the next thing you know, Neidhart tagging in, also hitting Roma with a standing dropkick. So ask and ye shall receive, Gorilla. 
Neidhart then power slams Roma, but Paul kicks out again. Finally, it's a hot tag out to jump in Jim Brunzel while Bret Hart is in the ring. And it looks like there's some miscommunication and the guys collide, fall to the mat. For no reason, though, the heels and the faces, all of everybody in the apron, they start to enter the ring. And wouldn't you know it, the referee chooses to argue with the good guys, because of course he does. Meanwhile, Jim Brunzel scooping Bret Hart up in a body slam, Tama drop-kicking the hitman in the back, sending Hart crashing down on top of Jumping Jim, but Brunzel using the momentum to roll backwards, ending up on top of Hart instead, and the Bees eliminate the Hart Foundation, 30 minutes and 27 seconds. Yeah, and after that, I was heartbroken. But uh, hey, what can you do, man? Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah, I get it. A disgusted Bret Hart eliminated. He sits up. You think he uttered that famous four-letter word he did at Survivor Series 90? <laughs> you know the one. I do know the one right after he got rolled up. For, uh, I think it was the same move. Didn't uh, DiBiase uh, counter a, a crossbody cross block body, and roll yeah, him up cr- or something right. like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very similar. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah, very similar, yeah. But gets, I don't know. Did he? Gets me every time. I have no idea. I doubt he did it here, but I just thought I'd have a little fun with that because okay. was, the way he sat up was very yeah, similar to the way he sits up in 1990. So, A lot of, a lot of similarities between uh, Survivor Series 87 and 90, it seems like. Yeah, we've we've referenced it a couple times now. (laughs) As the match gets going, it's down to four on two. Jim Brunzel celebrating the elimination, but quickly attacked by the Islanders. Jumping Jim gets worked over on the mat as Brian Blair tags in. I think it's the first time I've said his name in the matchup, and he gets more of the same as Jumping Jim did. The bees getting beat down. Then the Young Stallions turn, also given some offense though. Roma hits a nice looking power slam on Haku. That's uh, one of the moves the Stallions would use as a finisher on. uh, Job guys anyway, but Tama breaking up the pin here. Blair going to try to help Roma, but it distracts the referee again as the Islanders double team the future glory, as you pointed out. Blair then tagging back in, taking another beating by the Islanders. Just keeps going on. Haku and Tama just beating the crap out of all four of their opponents here. As Brunzel gets another hot tag, nearly dropping Tama on his head with a backdrop. May have been Tama's fault, though. But Brunzel delivers the dropkick. The big famous finisher, the dropkick from Jumping Jim on Tama. That's got to do it, Jesse. One, two, but Haku in breaks it up. And the Stallions enter the ring to fend off Haku two on one. Of course, it takes more than two men to take on Haku. Uh, maybe it was Haku who had the advantage there. Not really sure. But the Stallions versus Haku. Yeah, there you go. Somehow Haku still with the advantage I wrote. Meanwhile, Brunzel tries a sunset flip on Tama, but Tama makes his way to the ropes grabbing hold of the ropes to prevent from falling back into that sunset flip. But at that very moment, Brian Blair just happens to put the bee mask on, just happens to be standing on the apron right where Tama's located. And Blair then slingshotting himself in over top of Tama, Brunzel rolling outside. Blair with the mask on, the referee has no idea it's Blair, the illegal man, and the bee is going to get the one, two, three, pinning Tama here in cheating fashion. Match goes 37 minutes and 14 seconds. You know, there is something. I mean, at least with a mask, it would be tougher to tell, like, who's who. It's not as bad as when they try to act confused with Axe and Smash. I mean, they clearly look (laughs) completely different. different, Paint different hair, different everything. But, yeah, man, hey, give them props. They got a cheap win. Whatever, dude. Take the win. 
I like the mask gimmick the Bees did. I like that they didn't wear it the entire match. I like that it only came into play when they needed it to. They used it to their advantage to counteract all of the heels cheating and things of that nature. The only thing stood out here was it was just a lengthy beatdown. The Islanders beating down four guys for nearly seven minutes before we get to this finish just seemed a little unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, seven minutes is the length of like uh, an entire match, you know, in a right. singles match or a tag match. But, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. They did what they did. Hey, 37 minutes for that match, though. I mean, I wouldn't expect anything less with 20 guys. I just wish, like, some of the teams in the beginning would have stuck around a little bit longer, you know? Yeah, I think it would have kept That's the pace. That's just my opinion. No, I agree. There's a lot of early eliminations and then a whole lot less in the second half, and it would have been nice if they paced that out, which they do. They get they get hip to that by 1988, but uh, quite possibly the two most improbable teams, other than the Bolsheviks, wind up the survivors of the matchup. The Bees going to celebrate what would be their last relevant victory here in the WWF as they survive the match, along with the Young Stallions as a disheveled-looking Happy Jack Kruger referee raises the winner's hands as his shirt's all untucked and everything. Jack, you got to have a better fucking dress code than that for the WWF. Uh, but here we go. Crank it up begins to play as uh, the Stallions and the Bees will survive. Jesse Ventura calls it a bunch of crap. I'll tell you what, first time out, I didn't see this coming. I didn't see the Stallions surviving. Anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation, pal. I mean, yeah, that's exactly right. And they pushed that uh, agenda with, you know, allowing those two teams to be the sole survivors of the match. So, I mean, you just never know what's going to happen, especially at the Survivor Series. Still can't get over it. The giant 20-man tag. What a sight it was. This was the most unique concept on the pay-per-view. And with so many guys involved, it obviously had the most action as well. And yes, the order of elimination and the time frame of some of those eliminations were eh, questionable. But several very good teams eliminated early on, earlier than needed, I thought. But if you're going to give a match 40 minutes, there's no reason to oust nearly half of the field. Only a third of the way through the match is what happened here. And because of that, that left room for several five- or six-minute beatdowns on the Young Stallions. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Young Stallions definitely uh, <laughs> took a lot of beatings uh, later in the match. But, you know, I think the, the WWF probably did what they were aiming to, which was give them some rub, you know, let them get the win, and then just kind of, you know, bolster the whole notion of, hey, anything could happen. You know, it's the WWF. And, uh, you know, Survivor Series, you know, you just never know. So tune in next year and see what happens. Yeah, maybe next year it'll be the Conquistadors playing the Young Stallions part. <laughs> Nobody truly knows. Uh, my, only my, my only suggestion there would have been to have a lot more quick tagging when the match was getting started, prolonging some of those early eliminations just a little bit, rather than creating large spaces of time uh, when fewer teams were out there near the end of the matchup. But it is what it is. That's hindsight, guys. The story goes, though, that... Vince McMahon chose the Young Stallions as survivors to prove that anything can happen at the Survivor Series. And it was supposedly done to show that with so many guys in the ring that the outcome would be unpredictable, pal. I'd say they accomplished what they were uh, going out for there. Yeah, I, I would say. Much would have rather have seen a team like, you know, Demolition, the Hearts, 
you know, even on the on the babyface side, you know, the Bulldogs, the tag team champions. If you were to ask me who was going to win this match, I'm almost certain that maybe the Bolsheviks would have been last, you know, uh, but uh, <laughs> the Young Stallions probably right would have been second to last. <laughs> yeah, you know, Jim Brunzel went on record to state that the Killer Bees were actually given this token win as a way to make up for them never being tag team champions. Now, supposedly, Vince had promised the Bees the tag team titles on three different occasions and yet it never came to fruition. Brunzel claims their win here was Vince McMahon simply throwing the bees a bone. And I really didn't mind the bees surviving, but I would have liked to have seen them in the underdog survivors here instead of the stallions and maybe a upper card team like the Bulldogs, like you were saying, as the other survivors. Because if you're going to pull the trigger on the stallions with a win here, at least do something with them afterwards. I mean, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that notion. Uh, you know, I, I like the whole ending with the bees, you know, utilizing the masks and, and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't really recall anything impactful, you know, that the Young Stallions did uh, after this. You know, they could have really rode high and had them do a little something. But a little something, anything. Who knows? Jimmy Powers would never anything. do anything remotely <laughs> as successful as this match again. Poor Jimmy Powers. And Paul Roma, he'd have a year of glory in the WWF later on in 1990 into 91 before heading off to be a horseman in WCW in 1993, but the Killer Bees, they'd also be split up in less than a year here. Brian Blair gone from the company by that point in time, so this was the WWF's first crack at this type of a match, and it was perfectly acceptable. Don't get me wrong, guys, I'm not trying to crap on it. For all the little things they could have done different to make it better, nothing was bad, per se, and everyone showed up with their working boots on, as has been the case all night long, will continue to be the case, as you guys will see. Everyone tried hard. They worked hard. Everyone on their game. Yeah, the extended Stallions beatdowns were a little bit much, but for what it was, it was fun. And let's remember, this would be the prototype for the 1988 20-man match, which they perfected, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, that 1988 uh, tag team survivors uh, Survivor Series match is probably one of my all time all time favorites, and I'm not I'm not talking about just all time favorite Survivor Series matches. Maybe in my top ten to twenty matches of all time, any kind of match. I mean, yeah, I just... I watched the crap out of that thing growing up, and I still enjoy <laughs> it today. So. Yeah, man, the the teams are stacked in that one. That's for sure. And with less than a year as a tag team now, Demolition about to begin their ascension past. The Hart Foundation is the top heel team in the WWF. Speaking of which, the Hearts obviously still looking to regain those tag team titles from Strike Force, who have now moved on from the Islanders feud. Speaking of the Islanders, now going to be feuding with the British Bulldogs in the near future as well. Then it's a whole lot of nothing for teams like the Rougeos, the Bees, the Stallions. All three of those teams going to end up in the WrestleMania Battle Royal here in 1988 over there on the face side, which is crazy because two of those teams survived this match. And then over on the heel side, the new dream team done the Bolsheviks eh. though. They will get themselves a tag title shot on an upcoming Saturday night's main event. So they got that to look forward to anyway, but just a fun 20 man tag guys. And right now it's intermission time, Jesse on the pay-per-view and it's Thanksgiving. So that means it's time for mean Gene to pass the fucking potatoes. No, Gene. I thought you were going to say the gobbledygooker. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, Gene. It's time to shill the WWF Survivor Series merchandise. Thank God we're a few years off from the gobbledygooker. T-shirts and the program on sale now. Buy yours today. Mean Gene assures us it's all great quality. And after all the action, tis indeed intermission time at the Richfield Coliseum. And so at home, 
were treated to a six-minute special of spending Thanksgiving with the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, as Ted takes us from a chauffeur-driven Bentley to his home for Thanksgiving dinner, as only he can do, pointing out that while the other wrestlers are fighting to survive, he doesn't need to. You don't have to prove you're the toughest to survive when all you need is money. And what does the million-dollar man have for Thanksgiving, Jesse? Why, not turkey, but rather squab, which is apparently above even quail and pheasant on the expensive birds chart. I don't know if I've ever heard of squab up until this point. Yeah, that's new to me, man. I'm not rich enough for squab. (laughs) Very retro. Must be a 70s and 80s type of bird for the uh, the millionaires out there. During the promo, though, DiBiase reminds us of some of his devious acts since coming to the WWF, like forcing the future Rob Van Dam to kiss his feet for $100 in Battle Creek, Michigan, or making a woman, not Linda McMahon, by the way, guys, contrary to urban legend, making her bark like a dog, even refusing to pay a kid for coming up one push-up short. Hey, kid, you didn't get the job done, so you don't get the money. God, I love it. I mean, that was excellent. I don't know if I liked the Million Dollar Man's promos better or <laughs> Mr. Perfect's, but the, the, I think they might be tied. They, they had the best vignettes, the, be, the best promos coming into the company, and as a new face into WWF, I loved it, man. I was eating it up. Gotta be the top two uh, vignettes for characters in the history of the WWF, and that covers a lot of ground. Hennig probably didn't get as much heat <laughs> as DiBiase's character did, but they were equally awesome for a, a lot of different other reasons. And I, I probably just a slight nod to Mr. Perfect, but we all know I'm a giant perfect fan, but yeah, both ways, man, these guys were just amazing. I can't wait till we get there someday, the Mr. Perfect vignettes. But for now, whoever came up with some of these segments for DiBiase was just a genius. I've never seen anything more heelish than kicking the basketball out of a little boy, Sean's hand, as he goes to dribble the ball for the 15th time Losing out on earning $500, the crowd just ate that shit up, and it was just pure gold. It was evil. (laughs) (laughs) It was good stuff, though, man. It was was great. I mean, it accomplished exactly what they set out to accomplish. You know, everyone hated that guy. (laughs) Let us not forget they show here, DiBiase, when he paid the owner of a public pool to evacuate all the children so that he could have the pool all to himself. But if that wasn't dickish enough... The kicker of that vignette was that DiBiase didn't even get in the pool. He simply lounged beside it. Ingenious classic heel stuff here. What a great asshole character was the Million Dollar Man. Well, he was, man. And, you know, he didn't need to get in the pool. He just paid to not have those brats splashing him while he was trying to bask in the sun and do a promo, you know? I'm not sure what the Million Dollar Man was needing with a public pool, but that's another story for another day. And I almost forgotten how good the Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man character was during that initial push until I went back and got to relive all of this again for the first time in a long time. Ted finishes the extended promo here in a fur coat with a ride in one of his fancy toys. Some type of really expensive-looking convertible, probably Vince's, as DiBiase finishes the final part of the segment in his car, though the audio, I notice this, the audio sounds perfect. No wind, no noise, as he's flying down the road in a convertible. Obviously, they re-recorded the audio, dubbed it back in later for that outdoor take, but man, what an awesome car, but DiBiase, twas the times again, DiBiase rocking a fur coat. That meant you were rich. 
Yeah, I mean, no doubt. You know, uh, it's funny you ask if that's uh, potentially, you know, Vince McMahon's coat, only because I heard a rumor, maybe you could confirm this. Didn't uh, he use Vince's house for uh, an episode of The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach? Is that a true thing? That is true. I'm not sure if multiple guys did that or not. I know they had visited Macho Man at one point, Mr. Perfect's home at one point. I'm not sure whose homes those really were. Pretty sure DiBiase's was Vince's, but there's, you know, fast forward just a little bit when they give DiBiase the the million dollar belt, when he goes into that jewelry store to pick it up, he's wearing a fucking Dracula cape and everybody like, who the fuck wears a Dracula cape, right? And the story goes, at least according to Bruce Pritchard, it was in Vince's house. Vince owned a Dracula cape because he was rich, pal, and you just did shit like that. So that's what a rich man looks like. So. DiBiase rocking a black cape as he goes to pick up the million dollar title. But that's many, many months down the road. But it just made me think of that here. But just really cool. I love that. they. Yes, I know we, we got a lot of downtime there. Usually they spend that with backstage promos and future pay-per-views. But here this time we get a cool DiBiase vignette. And then from there, the announcer spent another six minutes recapping the pay-per-view up until now. Like we didn't just see it. Hyping the main event also. The body thinks Honky Tonk was wise for taking that walk. In the opening bout tonight, no need to risk injury, says the body. Also, Ventura, very impressed with the jumping bomb angels, as I think we all were. And a travesty committed by the killer bees, says Jesse Ventura in that 20-man tag. Yeah, I mean, not much else to do than talk about what we've already seen. They're just trying to kill time. But, I mean, would we rather have, uh, you know, the the DiBiase vignettes and uh, Jesse and Gorilla, you know, talking for a few minutes, as well as the Honky Tonk Man here in a little while? Or, you know, do we just want that screen with a literal countdown (laughs) on it? The five-minute countdown, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) From there, though, Jesse finds it necessary to explain to us once again that Richfield is a suburb of Cleveland for the 50th time on the show. So uh, you you seem to notice these just as much as I do. Jesse just trash. You can't wait to get out of Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, there's at least, you know, six or seven times throughout the show. <laughs> but yeah, at the beginning of the show, here in the, the intermission, and anytime he has the audience's full attention when the, the cameras are on him, he uh, <laughs> you know, makes no mistake about telling everyone exactly what he thinks about our hometown. Get a red eye out of this stuff. too happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we got six minutes he of he doesn't know what's worse <laughs> Cleveland or Omaha so I, I guess at least he hates another city as much as Cleveland at this point in time Omaha there we go so we got six minutes of Ted DiBiase six minutes of recaps and yes there's still time left at intermission in the Richfield Coliseum okay so let's throw in a special interview with the honky talk man yeah, that's the ticket. Craig DeGeorge standing by on the stage where he brings out the Intercontinental Champion Hockey Talk Man and manager Jimmy Hart as Hockey makes an open challenge to the Hulkster. Title versus title? Kind of odd since they're currently in separate feuds. We'll actually get a title for title match eventually, but it'll be Hockey's successor as IC champ, the Ultimate Warrior, that would be in there with the Hulk at WrestleMania six. Again, one of my top 10 or 20 matches of all time, not due to the technical wrestling by any right. means, but just what that match meant. Oh, my God. Uh, first time ever, you know, in my childhood, maybe ever, that two top faces uh, of the company, you know, met like that in locked horns. Uh, but I digress. I know we're not talking 1990 WrestleMania, but one of my all-time favorite matches. Just champion versus champion. Title for title. Can't wait to get there. 
Someday, guys. As Hockey Talk Man then says he's through with the Macho Man and plans to move on. However, Gorilla Monsoon on commentary would suggest that Macho Man may not be finished with the Hockey Talk Man just yet. And that interview, it really didn't serve as much of anything other than time filler on the show and to get Hockey some more TV time after his loss earlier as Hockey proclaims himself the greatest entertainment package. Now that's what I'm talking about, pal. Boy, I bet I bet Vince loved to hear that. The greatest entertainment package, the Hockey Talk Man. It's not good enough that he's the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. He's got to be, you know, the greatest entertainment package. I thought it was kind of funny, though, when he mentioned, I'm the survivor. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, man. The, the guy was a little kooky. Little, I, I, I kind of like it now, looking back. But at the time, I hated that guy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's you know, that's, he served his purpose probably the most hated heel on the roster at one point, and uh, rightfully so, sold out those B-shows anyway everywhere they went uh, during that Hockey Talk Man run on top. So kudos to Hockey and what he brought to the table. Yes, he was one of the better uh, entertainment packages in the WWF, needless to say. And to George, he pushed it hard here, guys, so I got to mention it, but he never got the phrase over. But leading in, all of the interviews that George would do, he would always refer to the Rage in Richfield, talking about Survivor Series. So I give him an A for effort and trying anyway. Yeah, really. I mean, these NXT pay-per-views all have little sub-captions or subtitles. I guess that would have been interesting. The Rage in Richfield. Who knows? I, nobody was probably paying attention because it was Craig to George promos anyway. So it's just, he got away with it. The Rage <laughs> the, the in Richfield. The Clash in Cleveland. The Clash in Cleveland. There you go. So there it is. Uh, intermission over, guys. And finally, it's main event time. The bell sounds once again. And Rick Root's original stripper theme hits. And he, Bobby Heenan, and King Kong Bundy make their way down to ringside. And there's something not right about watching King Kong Bundy entering the ring to stripper music. <laughs> I don't know, man. Maybe it's just me. My thoughts exactly. My thoughts exactly, man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Out next are the Natural Butch Reed and the One Man Gang out with their manager Slick to Jive Soul Bro. And then it's Bobby Heenan on the microphone introducing the captain of the team, the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant, who refuses to enter to either theme, which would have been equally entertaining, Andre to stripper music or Jive Soul, bro. I would have took either one. Yeah, well, Butch Reed and uh, Akeem are one-man game coming down to Jive Soul, bro. That just worked. But uh, I don't know which one I would have rather seen Andre come down to. I would have to imagine, you know, Slick and company. Well, we know it wasn't happening, but if Andre was going to dance, Jive Soul, bro, all day long. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> Oh, I can. All, that's all I can do is imagine. Maybe a creator wrestler make it happen. But uh, so there they are. The t the heel team have entered the ring for the main event. As next, we head off to Mean Gene Oakland, standing by with Hulk Hogan and his team. Hulk Hogan and his partners. Thumping the Giants team, standing by up in the ring. These gentlemen are charged as they mentally prepare themselves for the big ten-man confrontation of the Survivor Series. Captain Hulk Hogan. Look how hungry they are, man. Look how hungry all the animals are, man. And all I get to say, there are no rules when you're dealing with Mother Nature. There's no insurance policy. You live, you die, you survive. But I'll tell you what, I've done everything I could to cover my back, man. Oh, you got these Look at them, man. Hard. Look how hungry they are. The natural food chain here doesn't matter, man. The larger animals like Andre the Giant, it doesn't matter. When they're this hungry, an animal like Ken Patera or Mr. Wonderful could eat them alive. But I'll tell you something, man. I got my policy covered, brother. I've got the magnificent one, the deep, dark past. Do what he has to do to get us through this thing. I've got the strongest in the world. I've got the fire, brother, just in case 
We have to burn the whole jungle down. I'll do it with a fire. But I've got the most unpredictable animal of all right behind me. Ask them how hungry they are. How hungry do they look to you? I'm hungry, and I'm here to survive. The strongest shall survive. What about it? The Rock, Don Morocco. Oh, the training's over. I'm here for a good time. And a good time. Humperdinck. Talking to Solomon said it's time to get in and do it right now. Bam, bam, bam. bam. Time to burn the building down, man. These guys are absolutely psyched to the max. Their captain, heavyweight champion of the world. Hulkster and his crew certainly look determined, Jess. Let's go to the ring. And dear God, the longer this show goes on is the more fucked up these people get backstage. Gene gets a nice one-liner from everyone here on the team, including Bam Bam Bigelow, who says, it's time to burn the building down. Shit like that'll get you fined or even fired these days. Hogan calls Paul Orndorff the most unpredictable man on his team. So at least they're playing into that past instead of ignoring it anyway. As Hogan starts to walk towards the camera. I don't know if you paid attention to this. He starts walking towards the camera in in a trance. And then just kind of turns and walks away. And I wrote down, in a ultimate warrior meets zombie type of hybrid. That's basically why I could describe Hulk Hogan's mannerisms. It made no sense. So Hogan disappears off camera. We don't see him. Where does he go? Well, it doesn't take long. He comes running back across the screen and tackles... Bam, bam, Bigelow out the other side. Jesus Christ, I want some of what they're having. Oh, my God. Yeah, I absolutely did notice that, man. It was, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if he was going in for, like, a hug or, uh, you know, a working clothesline. I, I don't know what the hell he was trying was to clothesline to be, bam, bam. I, I, definitely, <laughs> I definitely noticed it. Oh, my God. Oh, it was just the way you uh, – I love that shit. It was, it was great. It was good shit, pal. Uh, as we go back to the ring, and out comes Team Hogan. It's Bam Bam Bigelow and his manager, Oliver Humperdinck, leading the charge here. And Bigelow just over huge in the company and in record time. Hulk made sure to put the kibosh on that one really fast. As the Coliseum crowd is loud here, by the way, so loud you can't even hear the announcers at certain points. And Hogan, he hasn't even come out yet. This is just for the rest of the team. The crowd is certainly delivered, and I can see why they came back a second year here to the Richfield Coliseum in 1988 not only did they sell out but this crowd was hot all the way through yeah props to the crowd man i'm glad they weren't you know dead like some of these other cities not to name any names but yeah they, they, were hot. they wanted it Sorry. and uh you know <laughs> why, why you didn't catch that brother oh, I, I i was coughing i just said pittsburgh <laughs> oh okay i thought <laughs> But, yeah, yeah, but yeah, man, and, and they're about to really blow the roof off when they start playing uh, Hogan's music. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a second, but I was just thinking, you know, a women's match, which they were not trained to watch, 20 minutes long, and then a 40-minute match followed that, and this crowd's still hot, as they were when the show kicked off, so kudos to the Richfield crowd here, as Ken Patera out next, sporting a gaudy arm brace due to that injury he sustained earlier in the summer that pretty much killed whatever was left of his comeback. Also, Don Morocco out here, and he spares no expense on his wardrobe, Jesse, as he follows out in a generic blue sweatshirt. I don't even know what that's about. And then it's Mr. Wonderful rounding out the first four on the team, and then we wait a moment. The crowd dies down just a little before Real American begins to play, as you were just talking about. I guess it was Vince's way of building up the anticipation, and it worked, pal, because the crowd goes absolutely nuts for Hulk Hogan, who comes out toting a giant American flag. And I had to scratch my head for a second. 
sort of an odd fit. I guess he's either paying homage to Thanksgiving here in the United States, or he's declaring war on France for harboring Andre. I'm not really sure which one. Yeah, you know, Hogan's known for uh, being a patriot and representing America. I didn't know, was this his first time doing something like that with the big flag? Uh, I'm sure he's done it with Iron Sheik or Nikolai Volkov or things like that in the past. It just seemed really odd here. It's like, why are you waving the American flag? It's not really against the foreign fanatics here or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Hey, if you don't mind, man, I just had a little comment really quick going back to what you said about uh, Morocco's attire. Please do. You think that could have inspired uh, Batista? Maybe you think Batista with, with the whole Blue Tista thing? Maybe? Blue Tista. Well, I don't know. Blue Tista spent more money on know. his gear than I don't know what was. I mean, wear a Survivor Series shirt for fuck's sakes, Don Morocco. Jesus, I don't even know what was going on there with that. It's like, what is he wearing an old woman's sweater from? I don't even know what, what that was about. And I'm not even done talking about Don Morocco, guys. We're gonna get back to. We're going to get back to Morocco in just a minute. We're going to have a lot of fun with him, I, I, I do believe, as we get the match going. But did I mention this crowd insanely loud here? Just holy shit. Go listen to yourself, guys. As Jesse Ventura points out to Gorilla that the same evil, nasty Joey Morella is the referee for this match, making reference to Morella being the referee for the Hogan-Andre match at WrestleMania three. Of course, Joey being the son of Gorilla Monsoon in real life. I'm sure he loved whenever Jesse would attack his son, but uh, Joey Morella, referee at WrestleMania 3, referee at Survivor Series. Conspiracy? I guess it remains to be seen, as we call the match here. But uh, I did notice, too, man, like maybe on the house shows, you can you know tell me if I'm wrong here. But this is Andre's first appearance in the WWE ring, like in the match anyway, since WrestleMania 3. Isn't that correct? Yeah, he had one match like a couple weeks after WrestleMania 3, a tag team dark match at a TV taping. But other than that, this this is Andre's return uh, outside of that TV taping, right? Yeah, so your feuds here, they're more spread out than they would be in some of the other matches. You have Don Morocco replacing the spot of his soon-to-be manager, superstar Billy Graham, due to that attack by the gang and Butch Reed on Graham that took him out. There's no doubt the Hulkster having an orgasm at one point about getting to team with his longtime idol, the superstar, but in reality, Graham just couldn't get past that hip injury that had him sidelined for the past couple of years, and he was unable to remain an active wrestler. And the WWF, they tried to build off Graham's gimmick here by introducing Morocco as his replacement out for revenge. Meanwhile, Ken Patera, he has his backstory with the Heenan family after being a jailbird and all that good stuff. Prisoner number 59919, says Bobby Heenan. So, Kenny, he made a good choice as a Hulkamaniac for this matchup, feuding with Bobby and the crew. Rick Rude, he made his WWF debut over the summer of 87 as a member of the Heenan family. And when the brains started favoring Rude over his physical specimen, Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful again fired Bobby the Brain as his manager, turned back babyface once more to feud with Rick Rude. Paul, now managed by Oliver Humperdinck. And as a fan of the time, I questioned the reality of Orndorff once again teaming with Hulk Hogan here. The man just portrayed him just a little over a year ago, and they sold out arenas everywhere against each other. But throughout history, you'll note a trend of guys who turned on the Hulk and was welcomed back later with open arms, brother. Well, bless the Hulk for having such a short-term memory, man. Very forgiving dude, brother. Whatever makes money, dude. That's what it's all about. (laughs) Then we move on to the captains of the team. You know the story here, guys. Andre turned heel at the top of 87 to feud with his former friend Hulk Hogan, with a match that culminated at the legendary WrestleMania 3 event in Pontiac, Michigan. The near fall from WrestleMania 3 when Andre fell on top of Hogan during a failed slam attempt 
was used to push this match here in their eventual return title match at the main event this coming February. The Giant has made it clear he is here for the champion's soul. Remember that promo from earlier, guys? This will mark their first televised meeting, as you asked, Jesse, since WrestleMania 3, and Andre's first match in seven months. So the hype was there to make this a very meaningful showdown if these two get in the ring with one another. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I'm... I'm anticipating it as much as the the rest of the crowd there in Richfield is because these are the two biggest names in the company. Everyone wants to see them get their hands on each other. It's just a matter of time. At least we think, you know, uh, we'll find out here shortly, but uh, this would have never happened, but I would have loved to see them, them two just like start off. Could you imagine how hot oh, that crowd would be? It would have been hard to kind of follow that though with anything else. Yeah, I mean, you could you could have, well, it might have killed the crowd if you eliminated them right out of the gate. The two guys going at it, double count out or double DQ because they can't keep off of each other throwing the referee around. I could have seen them doing that, but probably not on a pay-per-view. Probably might have, might have hurt the crowd a little bit, took them out of it with Hogan and Andre both gone right out of the gate. But that would have been fun, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not even necessarily taking each other out, just maybe tearing into each other and then one of them, you know, backs into the corner and tags, you know what I mean? Just to just to start it off like that. But hey, I mean, we'll have to wait a little while, but I, I do believe that they might uh, see each other in the ring before the match is over. Yeah, build the anticipation here as uh, way we go with the main event as teams of five strive to survive. It's Team Andre the Giant. It's Andre, King Kong, Bundy, Ravishing Rick Rude, all members of the Heenan family teaming with the one-man gang and the natural Butch Reed from the Slick Army and their opponents, WWF champion Hulk Hogan, along with Ken Patera, The Rock, Don Morocco, Bam Bam Bigelow, and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, Orndorff and Bigelow managed by Sir Oliver Humperdinck here as Morocco is ready to start things off with Rick Rude. And look at The Rock here. The Rock looking extra uh, vascular, I guess you could say. Look at my rock. My rock is huge. My rock is vascular. Oh, my. Have you heard Hogan in the promos leading into this? He keeps referring to Don Morocco's uh, his upper body, all of the veins, as hoses. Look at the hoses, man. Oh, man. I don't know if that's healthy, really. But uh, you're right, dude. Well, he's still alive. He's one of the the few guys still alive in this match. So what do I know? But I agree with you. As I was looking at that, I'm like, Dude, Don, that does not look right. Like, that does not look healthy. I've never seen, I, I don't know very many people that, that have hoses that size in their upper body. Just insane. The transformation Morocco underwent immediately upon turning babyface. His circulation must be amazing with hoses that <laughs> wide in diameter, brother. Oh, my goodness. The Rock, Don Morocco, going to kick things off here with Ravishing Rick Rude. It's Rude versus The Rock and his hoses. Morocco really is trying to fill the shoes of Superstar Graham, beginning to really work out as the two men trade blows with Morocco gaining favor. From there, both Bigelow and Orndorff tag in at the same time. I don't know if you caught that for Team Hulk Hogan. And Bam Bam, they both climb in the ring and Bam Bam has to step back out of the ring in an embarrassing moment. Oh, I wasn't supposed to tag in? Okay. Uh, Orndorff, though, instead comes in off the top rope and takes it to the Heenan family replacement ravishing Rick Rude. Paul then tags in the Hulkster. Hogan in with a big clothesline on Rude and a series of rapid-fire elbow drops by the Hulkster? I just wrote, wow. Yeah, I agree, man. There was quite a few spots in this match where Hogan did something you don't normally see him do, and I was like, wow, 
he must have added some things to his repertoire for this match. He thought he was a new that Japan was one of them. for this one. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, <laughs> he's thinking he's really got to work. <laughs> there's five guys on his team, and he's still come to work tonight, man. It, it, there was a directive that clearly came down from Vince McMahon to everybody. You guys better be on your A game, including you, Hulk, because I wrote wow at least three times in this match at the end of a sentence involving a Hulk Hogan wrestling move. And that was just the first of many, but Hogan just driving down rapid fire elbow drops and then tagging out to Bam Bam Bigelow, who comes in with a big headbutt and a press slam, sending Rick Rude across the ring before bringing in Ken Patera. And Rude really running the gauntlet here right out of the gate against the entire Team Hulk Hogan as Kenny Patera comes in right in and nails Rude with his arm brace, the weasel whacker, if you will. And Rick Rude finally managing to tag out to the natural, Butch Reed. Reed now in, and his, he has his issues with Patera here and Don Morocco. The Rock even busting out a drop kick. You don't see that every day. Don came to work tonight, both him and his hoses, getting off the ground for a drop kick there. <laughs> and speaking of coming to work, Paul Orndorff in next with a pair of drop kicks as well. The Natural tries to fight back, but he misses a corner charge on Mr. Number Wonderful, and Paul makes the tag to Hulk Hogan. And then we see double teamwork from the hated rivals as Hogan and Orndorff shoot Butch off for a double clothesline and the Hulkster drops the big leg. Hogan makes the cover one, two, three. And just like that, three minutes and six seconds, Butch Reed eliminated from the matchup. A great opening sequence to keep the fans at a peak screaming level all throughout the first several minutes, but it didn't work out too well for the natural. Yeah, I mean, uh, Reed didn't get much run in that match, but, uh, you know, they did keep the crowd hot with that uh, somewhat quick elimination. And uh, you're not kicking out of the big leg drop, brother. No, nobody's kicking out of it, much less the natural Butch Reed. Hogan's going to have one one-on-one match with Reed, and I believe that's coming up next month in December of 87. Some of the matches out there, not the uh, matching completion, but uh, they will get it on one-on-one one time. So Reed's going to get himself a title shot out of this anyway, but... Yeah, unfortunately, it was a little early in the matchup, but I get what they were doing there, and you can't really be upset when you're doing the job to Hogan's leg drop. Speaking of Hogan, while he's in the ring celebrating all of his partners, giving high fives to Ken Patera, Andre the Giant steps into the ring, ready to take on the Hulkster, ready to take his soul. We're going to see it, guys. We're going to finally see it for the first time since WrestleMania three. It's Hulk versus Andre. but. Wait a minute. Referee Joey Morella says Hogan's high five to Ken Patera constituted a tag. I wrote stupid. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Like, what the hell is going on here? But it's a little too early for the Hulkster and uh, the Giant to get their hands on each other. Man, they're going to make the crowd keep uh, waiting for it. You know, the first time I saw that way back when I-, I didn't understand it for a second. I'm like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And this wouldn't be the first time Hogan used this gimmick, though. They actually used the spot way back when Hulk Hogan teamed with Mean Gene Okerlund, that matchup on the old Coliseum video taken on Mr. Fuji and George the Animal Steel back in 1984. So it's likely a Hulk idea that he recycled here, or even more realistically, I stole it, brother. As the crowd is not happy that Hogan cannot take on the giant at this moment in time in the matchup, the Hulkster visibly unhappy as well. And Patera apparently fails to realize that all he has to do is tag Hogan back into the fucking match. That's right. So instead, we're forced to wait for the showdown 
just a little bit longer. So Andre then tagging back out of the ring because he has no interest in the Olympic strongman. So we get King Kong Bundy in there for the first time as Patera shows more energy here than he does for the rest of his tenure and the company combined, even dropping Bundy with a big clothesline. As the match continues, we see several tags on both sides of the ring. We eventually wind up with one man gang and Morocco in there. Gang missing an avalanche in the corner, and Morocco going to bust out a Ricky Morton somersault roll and make the hot tag out to Ken Patera. Unbelievable what these guys are doing. As Patera goes nuts on the gang with kicks and punches, even a fucking body block by Patera here. I wrote, Jesus, everyone, working shoes on tonight. With Patera in control, the gang goes to his eyes and takes Patera over to the heel corner where the team works Kenny over. At this point, there's a loud chant. I can't really tell what they're saying. I wrote in my notes, I believe it's Andre sucks, but I wasn't positive there. But Patera finally frees himself out of that corner, fighting back on the Heenan family, Slickster's men, while the gang's still left anyway. And Kenny and the gang off the ropes, going for clotheslines at the same time. But it's the one-man gang's girth that wins the battle here as he falls forward on top of Patera to score the pin. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. And the finish, it looked a little botched there, at least to me. But given the gang's size, it still worked as Patera is now eliminated. Yeah, well well put, man. Uh, the gang's girth <laughs> got, got him the win. Because it did, man. It looked uh, like, uh, you know, what, what was supposed to happen there? It looked like a car crash. But the gang's bigger and he fell on top of Patera. Hey, it's believable, man. If that guy fell on me, I'm probably uh, not kicking out either. Yeah, it didn't feel like that's the finish we were supposed to get. But when it was over, you believed it. It's just the gang's girth, indeed. Uh, from there in the matchup, the Hulkster and the Bammer work over the gang, landing a double big boot in the process. Pretty cool spot. But eventually, gang and Bigelow crack heads, and both men go down, making tags back to Rick Rude and Paul Orndorff, respectively. Paul in with a suplex, his patented elbow drop. No, Not quite dancing yet was Mr. Wonderful. But he launches Root to the air with a nice big back body drop. Root always took a great backdrop right down on his ass. Don't know how you never broke his tailbone. As Orndorff then calls for the pile driver on Ravishing Rick when Bundy steps in and clobbers Paul in the back of the head. And when Orndorff gets back up to go after King Kong Bundy, Root going to roll Orndorff up from behind, schoolboy in a hook of the trunks for the elimination of Mr. Wonderful in 10 minutes and 25 seconds. You know, I was hoping we'd see more from Orndorff here, but the fact is he would be leaving the WWF by the first week of January in 1988. So he's only got a few weeks left here in the company, but still cool to see Orndorff out here in the main event. Yeah, man, it was the, he fell victim to the roll-up of doom. You know, when you hook the tights like that, you can't kick <laughs> out of that one. You know what? It was good to see Rick Rude too. Yeah, Rick Rude, new to the company. Uh, you know, it's good. I'm glad he got a pin. It's uh, probably done for a very good reason, as we'll see in the next elimination in the matchup. Rude decides to celebrate the pin on Mr. Wonderful by posing for the crowd, because that's what he does, when Morocco surprises Rick with an atomic drop and a big clothesline. And then Bigelow, tagging back in, hits a variation of a thrust kick. Damn, that guy was good for his size. Then Hulk in with a high knee. I wrote, wow, again, wow, number two. Hulkster busting out a high knee here. And then it's a tag back to the rock down Morocco. Hulk whipping Rude into the ropes. Hulkster with a drop down. Wow, number three. Hulk Hogan with a drop down. Rude jumping over Hogan, running right into a power slam from Morocco. For the guys involved, this is actually a pretty good spot. Very well timed. As Rude does the job to a Morocco power slam, 
11 minutes and 22 seconds, and we're back to even at three versus three. Yeah, I mean, Don Morocco's hoses got rude in that power slam, man. It was just nothing he could do after that, man. But uh, you you mentioned it, uh, the the high running knee, uh, Hogan's high knee, was definitely mm-hmm. one of the ones that I caught him to and said, whoa, you don't see that every day. <laughs> I didn't not. even notice. Uh, yeah, you called another spot. What, what do you have, like some sort of uh, takedown, you said? Drop down. He did a drop down. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, the drop down into the power slam. Okay, right, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just some things you don't normally see. But uh, another thing real quick, and then we uh-huh. can move on. Sorry. Sure. No. But that, uh, you, met, you, you mentioned Rick Rude took, like, the best backdrops. And uh, I got to say, too, man, I always loved his reactions after a good atomic drop. Oh, too. my God. It didn't get any <laughs> you know, better than that. Yeah, yeah, this match was actually pretty mild if you look back, but I mean, he's had some ones, you know, in other matches, man, where it's just like the greatest of all time. Oh, best sell job of an atomic drop in history was Rick Rude. Inverted and the regular atomic drop. I like when somebody would give him both. Just sold it from both sides. (laughs) Yeah, God bless him, man. You know, he's been gone for quite a long time, unfortunately, but Rick Rude was uh, one of the best, man, uh, to get it done in the ring. As he's eliminated here by Morocco and his hoses. I'm sure Hogan wanted to be a part of that one. As a King Kong Bundy then going to rush in and attack the Rock. But Morocco dodges a Bundy knee drop on the mat. Morocco then tries for a power slam on the one-man gang. But the gang falls on top. Going to get himself a two count. As the action continues, gang then throwing Morocco right into a headbutt from Andre the Giant standing on the apron. And Morocco takes a bump back to the mat, half knocked out from the Andre headbutt, and the gang going to land the big 747 splash to eliminate Don Morocco and his hoses, 12 minutes and 56 seconds. Gang scored the pin, but an assist there to Andre. So when Morocco got pinned, did the Fink actually announce Don Morocco and his hoses have been eliminated? I don't think he got the memo about the hoses. (laughs) I think that was just a Hulk Hulk Hogan deal, man. <laughs> Don Morocco and his hoses have been eliminated. There you go. 12 minutes, 56 seconds. Morocco gone from the action, but the action will continue. Is Bam Bam Bigelow going to step in for Team Hulk Hogan? Trying a sunset flip on the one man gang, but the gang going to sit down out of the chest of the Bammer. I wrote, ouch. As the gang and Bundy then proceed to take turns working over Bigelow, Bam Bam kicking out repeated pinfall attempts here. Bammer even trying an inside-out bump off of a Bundy clothesline. My God, guy's just too big to be trying some of these things. And now, finally, the Giant tags in, and we're going to see him wrestle. Well, I think we're going to see him wrestle. We'll have to see what happens here. Andre climbs into the ring, goes for a punch on Bam Bam Bigelow, but Bammer tucks and rolls to his corner to tag in the Hulkster. Oh, here we go. Now it's time. Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant. They built it up some 13, 14 minutes into the matchup, and they waste no time immediately trading punches and chops, Hogan ramming the Giant's head into the turnbuckle, knocking the gang and Bundy off the apron to boot. Fucking asshole. (laughs) Hold on, I gotta take a drink of water. What happened? (laughs) Just Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan happened. Hogan and that's taking, why he goes undrafted. That's right. That's that's exactly right. As uh, Hogan taking on the entire Andre the Giant. Well, what's left of the team? Hogan, <clears throat> Andre, Gang, Bundy here. 
Hogan stuns the giant with a pair of elbows and starts to run off the ropes when he's tripped up and pulled outside of the ring by King Kong Bundy. And then from there, Hulk goes all Superman as he fights off both King Kong Bundy and the one-man gang, about a thousand pounds there, body slamming both men outside on the floor. But by the time Hogan is done slamming Bundy, referee Joey Morella has counted the Hulk out of the ring to eliminate Hogan from the matchup. 18 minutes and 14 seconds and talk about a surprise. That elimination was pretty shocking for the times. I was like, the first time I saw that, I went, what? How can you finish the match without Hulk Hogan? Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, of course, the crowd booed chorus of boos after that elimination. But could you imagine, like, you go to the Richfield Coliseum, you pay your money to get in. You just know that Hulk Hogan is standing victorious at the end of the night. Like, he just simply didn't lose, count out or not. Like, the guy just didn't lose during this time period. So, a uh, huge, huge surprise, I think, for everyone. And the thing is, too, that you could even say Hogan got a little greedy because he had King Kong Bundy off of him, and he could have got back in the ring, but no. he no, had I got to slam, slam you, brother. dude. That's right, brother. Absolutely so. So, I mean, it was kind of his own it was kind of his own doing, you know, that he got counted out there. He would never have that. But, yeah, it was just for the times, you were trained to think that Hogan can't lose. So when he was eliminated here the first time, I kind of froze for a second, like, how does this match go on? Like, it's impossible or something. I don't know, man. It's just the way they had you trained back then, the uh, right. <laughs> brainwashing of the WWF. So we get just a taste of Hulk and Andre before that's done here. Hogan doing what he does best, though, anytime he's eliminated from something. He argues with the referee until he agrees to leave when they threaten to disqualify Bam Bam Bigelow. And now it's three-on-one guys, Andre, the gang, and King Kong Bundy versus the Bammer. As the action continues, Bammer holding his own, landing an impressive standing dropkick onto Bundy, but King Kong reverses an Irish whip in the corner, comes charging in with his avalanche splash, but Bigelow out of the way, and Bundy crashes hard to the buckle, taking a bump down to the mat, Bigelow already on the apron, capitalizing with his patented slingshot splash, his finisher, back into the ring onto Bundy, gonna score the win and eliminate King Kong, 20 minutes and 48 seconds, and and that was miraculous enough. I remember when I saw this for the first time after Hogan was eliminated, I saw Bundy on, and Gang and Andre versus Bigelow, and I thought Bigelow didn't have a chance. There's no way he's going to be able to eliminate anyone, much less what he pulls out here. So watching him pin Bundy the first time, I popped huge. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, one-man Gang and Andre dwarf you know, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow. You know, still, even though King Kong Bundy, uh, you know, may be a little bigger, that was impressive as hell, man. I mean, to, for a guy, uh, Bigelow size, what was he, like 300 pounds? 350, at least? probably, something like that, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, most likely. So he slingshots himself over the top rope, which I know he's been known to do, obviously. But, uh, I mean, that guy was gassed. That look on his face <laughs> after he gets the pin on Bundy just tells the whole story, man. He's like, wow, did I make He is just oh. like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> hey, yeah, man, it's, props it's, to him though, man. I mean, a guy that big being able to move around. You you talked about his kick earlier in the night. You know the rolls. You know he did, we didn't get to see his patented uh, cartwheel, but uh, I mean he's moving all around and he's been in the ring a lot tonight. So I mean, yeah, I popped huge too. I, I was definitely wanting Bam Bam Bigelow to come out victorious on this one. He has a yeah. tall order though. We'll see. Yeah, Bigelow there landing that slingshot splash, and when he's making the cover, his face is just 
in another world. I, I, I get what you're saying. They're just completely gassed, like, oh, holy shit, how did I make it over that top rope? But I did it. And he eliminates Bundy there. And with King Kong Bundy out, the gang quickly into attack Bammer, dropping him with a big clothesline. And then the gang just lays on top of Bam Bam Bigelow in a very awkward way for an uncomfortable amount of time. And I'm not sure what the deal was there. I just think Bam Bam was completely out of gas. And he couldn't even stand up. It looked like the gang was talking to him like, are you okay? Can you get up to finish the match? As the gang eventually throwing Bigelow into a boot from Andre the Giant. And then the gang climbs to the top rope. Oh my God. OMG. The OMG. See what I did there, guys? Misses a splash off the top rope. And Bam Bam, quick to capitalize again, rolling on top of the gang to eliminate him. 23 minutes and 8 seconds. You have to wonder... Did they call an audible there and switch up the elimination because Bigelow couldn't even get on his feet? The, the whole finish was Bigelow laying there, moving out of the way, and then rolling back over on top to score the win. Yeah, uh, here I thought the story to that spot was one-man gang climbing to the top rope. But yeah, <laughs> you, you could be onto something. It was a little, you know, slow. But yeah, Bam, I don't think Bam Bam Bigelow was going to be moving around a whole lot. He had to save the last little bit of his energy for his little uh, few minutes with Andre yeah, next. you don't want to screw that up. Uh, yeah, I mean, props, props to Big, Bigelow, man. He took a three-on-one impossible situation. Now he's got a 50-50 chance, at least, you know, theoretically. <laughs> And Bam Bam Bigelow defying all odds as it's down to one-on-one. Andre the Giant stepping over the top rope and immediately going to put a beating here on Bam Bam. Giant trying to throw Bigelow off the ropes, but Bammer going to hold on to those ropes. Andre then coming after Bigelow three times. And every time, Bigelow does a somersault roll out of harm's way. That really had to gas him. But finally, Bam Bam Bigelow charging at the Giant, but Andre moving out of the way. And the timing, pretty shitty on the spot, but it was still passable enough as Bigelow going to crash hard into the corner buckle. And Andre works on Bigelow's back in the corner before he takes Bam Bam over in a single underhook suplex. Sloppy move. Dangerous too, but effective. Single underhook. Never seen that done before, but he is a giant after all as Andre makes the cover and pins Bam Bam Bigelow to survive the main event. 24 minutes and 33 seconds, so your sole survivor, I guess that's S-O-U-L, according to Andre, is indeed the eighth wonder of the world, Andre the Giant. Yeah, and I think they did the right thing here, man. Uh, Andre kind of needed to go over to continue to build to his rematch with Hulkster, but uh, hey, you know, even Jesse the Body said this during the match, um, or maybe it was Gorilla. They mentioned, you know, how this is is uh, kind of parallel to the whole first match with Honky three on one. Mm-hmm. One of them said maybe he should just run away. <laughs> but uh, sounds yeah. more like a Jesse anyway, he said, Paul, but... Yeah, yeah. Now that I say it out loud, it definitely had to be Jesse <laughs> that said that. But uh, yeah, man. And in, in conversely, to the Honky Tonk man, Bigelow stood his ground and you know stayed in the ring. So there's a good little um, mirror to that first match with Honky when it was three on one. Yeah, good call there. I'd never even noticed that before. It's uh. The match ends. Andre the Giant will survive as we begin to hear loud cheers. But it isn't for the Giant, guys. Nope. Andre has little time to celebrate before the biggest sore loser in the history of professional wrestling returns to ringside. Yes, here comes Hulk Hogan with the WWF Championship belt in hand. And he cracks Andre with the title twice to send him out of the ring. Hulk then spends what feels like an eternity 
posing for the fans in the Richfield Coliseum, so not only does he steal the spotlight from the Giants' big moment here, but he doesn't even bother to bring Bam Bam Bigelow back in the ring to put him over. Glory hound. Are you kidding, man? Bam Bam Bigelow was passed out, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that very well could have been, but Hulk should have been out there reviving him instead of worrying about posing for the fans. But, you know, Vince's motto back in those days, Hogan must pose, pal. Yeah, I agree. And it did feel like forever, man. (laughs) Ten minutes at least. Hey, I got to say, even with the loss to Andre, yeah, well, (laughs) even with that loss to Andre, Bigelow did more than most could have ever done and make it believable here. He came out looking great, having beaten two out of three of those monsters. And it was clear Bam Bam was being built up to be the, the next super being of the squared circle, perhaps the next big monster to turn on Hulk Hogan down the line and draw some money with him. No matter how you slice it, though, Bigelow, he had the look, the ability, and he was over his all hell here. But Bam Bam, was, he was something special during this initial run in 1987 into 88. It's just a shame all sides, both Vince and Bammer, let it fizzle out by the springtime of the following year. Yeah, it's amazing to me that his run didn't last a little longer uh, towards the top of the card like that, man. I totally agree. I I really got into him, and I won't spend long on this topic, but I loved him, actually, uh, close to a decade later when he was having great matches in ECW. Oh, yeah. So even, like, 10 years older, I mean, he's, like, fighting Taz. He's fighting, you know, Shane Douglas. I mean, those were some of the the greatest ECW matches I, I can remember. So can you imagine if he was, you know, ever given the opportunity to step in the ring with Hulk or like be a top guy back in these days. I think they really dropped the ball a little bit with him. Yeah. And I have to agree. And I think, you know, this, you know, Bigelow became disenchanted with the other side, with the business side of the WWF as well. And they kind of had a falling out and Bammer blew out one knee and his story goes that he blew out the other one at WrestleMania four. And he did wrestle a little bit after that, but not much more after that. And he was pretty much gone by somewhere in the early part of the summer of 88, if I remember correctly. So Unfortunately, he comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. And uh, that's the story of Bam Bam Bigelow, though we got a ways to go there with that career. So we're going to keep following that as we go along. He looked great here. No real complaints in this matchup, given all the larger size guys involved. It moved surprisingly well, I thought. And I already stated, everyone came to work, which is always a plus. We get just a taste of Hogan versus Andre here, which was done to build to the match, the rematch at the main event on NBC in February of 88. I don't think anyone expected to see Hogan take a pinfall here. I know I didn't. And even in his elimination, he still made sure that he looked like a star slamming two 400-plus-pound monsters while being counted out. But make no mistake, Bam Bam Bigelow, for me, was the MVP of this matchup and came out looking like a star. Uh, With so many guys in this match, they're usually slow and plodding or even immobile. They worked hard here to make this feel like a big-time match. All of them did. Yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree. You were spot on with everything you just said, so I don't have a whole lot to add there. But you do see, like, especially on the heel team, you know, the Andre, uh, one-man gang, Bundy, you expect, you know, there to be some points in the match where it is slow and plotting, uh, for lack of a better term. But you know what? They really didn't have many spots like that. They kept it uh, intriguing. You know, Bam Bam Bigelow, for his size, you know, every time he was in there with one of the bigger guys, he kept the pace up, you know, as best he could there until towards the end. But, I mean, yeah, it was exciting. It was a good match, and uh, I think they accomplished everything they were looking to, especially with Bam Bam Bigelow, even though he lost the match. uh, They were able to further the storyline with Andre and Hulk, and at the same time, man, he looked like a superstar, um, a megastar, really. Right, yeah. 
And some of the baby faces have been, you know, plotting up to this point. Don Morocco was uh, very, you know, n- known to maybe half-assed it in the ring for the last couple of years here. But he realizes this is my last shot, you know, at uh, getting a push here. And he, he worked hard, as did Kim Patera, who's already suffered an arm injury and he's not really getting over. He hasn't been doing a whole lot physically in the ring up until this point. He's out there. It's not much, but for him to deliver a crossbody was something to see. Kim Patera getting, you know, leaving his feet. So... I just really liked watching everybody really come in there and give it their all as this was a good way to jumpstart the Hogan Andre feud. That's technically laid dormant for the most part since WrestleMania three. And this was a statement that the giant was back having Andre go over here and Bam Bam Bigelow. He goes all the way, takes out two monsters before losing to the giant clearly meant to build Bigelow as a serious star. Unfortunately, like I said, Hogan must pose pal. Uh, Don Morocco going to honor his new mentor, Billy Graham, by going after Butch Reed after this, even though technically it was the gang who really put Billy Graham out. But I don't really blame Morocco for sticking with Butch Reed there. Orndorff and Rude, those matches will continue for the remainder of 1987. But as I said, Paul, he's going to be gone, retire for a few years by the beginning of 1988. As for King Kong Bundy, also all but gone from the company here. And you wouldn't know it based on his upcoming high-profile matches with Hogan, on back-to-back Saturday night's main events in November and January. But Bundy, he's going to finish up with the company by January 1988 as well. And lastly, Ken Patera was already paired with Billy Jack Haynes by this point, working demolition on the house shows all the way into January of 1988 here before Haynes too will leave the company, not so, leaving Ken Patera with nothing to do for the rest of the entire year of 88. Kenny actually going to finish up with the company at Survivor Series in just a year. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize how many people on this card are going to be stepping away or uh, released within the next year. But uh, listening to that list, I mean, it sounds like there's quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. And that's not even counting. Well, Butch Reed, he's gone after WrestleMania four, So quite a few names here uh, on the way out within the next weeks to months. Uh, but we're not done yet, guys, as we close out the show. One final promo for you guys. Mean Gene Oakland standing by backstage with Andre the Giant and manager Bobby Heenan. Now, man alive, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think I could ever recall seeing anything quite so hot. Bobby Heenan, Andre the Giant, gentlemen, come on in. I don't care, Andre the Giant winning the Survivor Series, but Hulk Hogan making no bones about the fact, Bobby Heenan, he wants this man. Let me tell you something. He can have this man. All you gotta do is put your name on that line. He survived everything. He survived the best in professional sports today. And Hogan, you couldn't take it, could you? It hit you right here, you miserable human. You stood in the back and you ran out, tried to cheap shot It didn't work. You want him? You got him. I want to hear from this man himself, Andre the Giant. He just said, I know how to say it, you but just like I promised, Everybody, I wear British Ferrari, and I say, I am the Survivor, because it's not nice. It's not nice to be Ferrari. All right, I thank you very much. Nobody can beat him. Wait a minute. Nobody can beat him. on the bottom line. I perceive something. You're going to Jesse Ventura. Let's go back to you. So rather than being upset about being ran out of the ring by Hulk Hogan, Heenan and Andre are focused on the fact that Andre survived the match. He was the winner, guys, let's not forget. And believe me, guys, Hogan wants you to forget that. As Mean Gene says that Hogan wants it, Andre. 
and Bobby and the Giant welcome that match. All Hogan has to do is sign the championship contract, and he can have the Giant. So, ah, the plot thickens. You want me one-on-one, Hogan? All you have to do is put that belt on the line. Yeah, I mean, and, and Bobby's a genius here, man, and I'm just going to end it the way uh, Andre said it. <laughs> I don't need to say anything. Bobby said it all for me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll just leave it at that, man. I mean, the, the guy's a genius on the mic. Oh, my God. It started to take a <laughs> drink of water, and you, I mean, it wasn't, you weren't even being funny, but it was, it was funny, and I don't have to say shit. It's like Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman. Bobby says it all, and he did say it all. As uh, we go back to the ring to close out the show, even more Hulk Hogan posing follows here as Gorilla and Jesse Ventura then close out the night. Hulk Hogan's music continues to play us out while we look at pictures from tonight's event. And that, guys, will wrap it up. Yes, that will conclude the 1987 Survivor Series, Jesse. Hey, man, it was a pleasure. Thanks again for having me on here. It was a blast, um, you know, sometime in the future. I'd uh, love to maybe jump on here and uh, call another show or, you know, shoot the breeze, whatever you have me for, man. But, hey, uh, thanks again. I just want to say it's been an awesome, awesome time with you, man. Hey, before you leave the show, I just want to get your take. Overall, your overall thoughts on this pay-per-view. Where does it rank in Survivor Series for you? Well, I mean, I'll be completely uh, transparent here. There's probably at least – a dozen Survivor Series that I probably couldn't even list a single match, you know, sure. in later years. Right. Um, but as far as like out of the first, let's just say ten Survivor Series where I can actually remember, um, it's not, it's not last. I don't think it would be my my top, but probably somewhere in like the middle ground. Only four matches, you know. That's that's not a knock on it whatsoever, but. Some def- definitely some memorable uh, highlights that I'll never forget. You know the the jumping bomb angels in the women's match, uh, the first time seeing, you know the the twenty men in the in that tag team survivors match. You know we discussed. You know the eighty eight one was maybe a little better in our opinion, but you know this was the first time, so it gets a little bump for that. I think it was a good overall pay per view, man, and uh, that's really uh, I guess all I have to say about that. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I just have a couple notes here, too. I wrote, nothing on the show was bad, so I agree with you there. I can't think of the last time we could actually say that about a pay-per-view, that everything on it was good and solid. And this was only the WWF's second pay-per-view ever outside of, you know, WrestleMania, and now uh, that would go on to become an annual event, I mean, guys. Second of the big four, if you will. Everyone worked hard to make this show successful, and for the first time out there, I felt every match did a good job of entertaining. I'm glad they came up with that 20-man tag team survival match you were just talking about. I really miss those things because the action and eliminations, always a great time. The women delivered above and beyond all expectations for this time period. They even managed to fill the in-arena intermission on TV by building up what would become the top heel in the WWF for the year of 1988, and I'll say it again. Those DiBiase skits were the best. Now, that said, the Honky Tonk Man interview, that felt like complete filler, and that's the only complaint I really have on the entire show. And it was short, keeping Honky in that semi-main heel slot, so can't really complain there. They just they did a good job keeping the fans entertained while they build towards the future. The main event, WrestleMania four, all of that stuff coming in the early part of 1988. So I have to agree with you and in, in regards to only having four matches, I think, They kind of figured that out over time. We can shorten the matches. If we shorten it from five on five to four on four, then we have an entire extra matchup. So it just gives everybody, you know, the matches go a little faster. 
which, you know, really worked out. I enjoyed 89 and 90 Survivor Series especially. I know you did as well. So I think, I don't know if I have an exact preference, but the four-on-four worked as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, nothing, no knock on 87 whatsoever, man. I just, I wasn't prepared for uh, putting it in, you know, chronological order. So no, I'm just no, going to no. be, play it safe and say it's definitely not on the bottom of the list, but it's probably, you know, not not my, you know, top favorite or nothing. Good good show overall. And I wait, wait, there's a new news flash. I think if you drive by Richfield Coliseum right now, I'm mm-hmm. hearing this. I think Hogan is still posing. That's very, very possible. Very possible, brother. My God, this goes on forever. You hear the stories of how the people were mesmerized by this nonsensical posing routine, and they would sit there for 20 minutes after a show and just keep watching him do this. I never got that. I hated that they would edit parts of matches out of Coliseum videos, but they would leave the entire Hogan posing intact at the end of the end of the videos. Unbelievable. Priorities, That's pal. That's when you think about it. Absolutely, it is. Exactly. Well, I appreciate they it, man. Started his music over. Oh on yeah, the pay per view. Probably itself. more than but... once. Probably more than once in the arena. You know, talk about let's beat the crowd. Oh no, nobody was beating the crowd there. Not when Hulk Hogan's out there posing for fucking thirty minutes after a pay per view. No way. But uh, <laughs> that'll do it here this week, guys. Going to wrap it up. I had a lot of fun calling the show with my brother Jesse. Thank you once again for joining the show and knocking out a pay-per-view with me. Hopefully, maybe we'll have you back down the road. would love to have you back for something like WrestleMania 4 or something along those lines. Yeah, WrestleMania 4 is going to be a challenge, brother. I mean, what are we talking, 4 or 5? I forget how many hours there, but if the stars align and I'm available, I'd rather be no other place. As Jesse Ventura likes to say in Survivor Series 88, there's no place I'd rather be. Than WrestleMania 4? I don't know about that. Trump Plaza, on, man, with you, with you, <laughs> oh, dude. Okay, okay, I got you. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate it, man. Appreciate you uh, taking the time out to knock this show out. Three hours of time. I know you got a lot going on in your life, but uh, you bailed me out here. My allergies gave me a little bit of time in between talking, so I didn't lose my voice completely here. And just had a great time with you, man. I rem- reminiscing and uh, going over some old memories and shit. And uh, another one in the books, guys. Survivor Series '87, Jesse. Thank you once again for being here. My pleasure, brother. Have a good one. All right, guys. Another fun show in the books. Another pay-per-view. It's been a long time coming. Haven't had a pay-per-view since WrestleMania 3. And now the WWF, they're just going to start throwing them at us. Saturday night's main events, the main event, the Royal Rumble special on the USA Network, and then WrestleMania 4. All of those big events not too far away. As remember, when we finish the 1987 project, it's on to 1988 here in the WWF. But what a great time. I want to thank my brother, Jesse, once again for joining the show. Had a lot of fun reliving some memories, some inside stories, lots of laughs, and just an all-around great time dissecting the inaugural Survivor Series event. And hopefully you guys can expect more of that to come in the future. But for now, it's time to wrap things up this week. As next time we return, we're going to continue on. Yes, November's not over yet, guys. Still another week, another weekend of WWF TV here in the month of November covering superstars, wrestling challenge, and yes, even primetime wrestling, which subsequently moving back to Monday nights. Sorry, Bobby. But also on the next episode of The Grenade, it's the next edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. As the WWF champion Hulk Hogan going to defend his title against King Kong Bundy. Plus in a sleeper match, well, maybe not so much a sleeper match, the Macho Man Randy Savage versus the Hitman Bret Hart. It's going to be fun. Can't wait for that, all of that, and so much more next time here on The Grenade. 
Remember, guys, to go check out WrestleCopia.com for all of the podcasts here on the WrestleCopia brand. Of course, follow me on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. Follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Subscribe, YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade. And of course, check out that $5 all access tier over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That address again, Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, where it's a multitude of gifts for just $5. All of that said, going to be back soon with episode 105 as we finally close out the month of November, heading into the home stretch. December right around the corner. Can't wait to talk all about December of 1987 in the WWF. But first, another edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. And who's complaining? So until then, this is Ray Russell saying, from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and I'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. See you next week. Don't miss it. Be there! Survivor Series. And I'm leaving Cleveland, and am I happy about that? Good night, everybody. 